0: Welcome to Authorized, a podcast where we covertly discuss the novelization of any film fortunate enough to have one. Novelizations know they are not there to reinvent the wheel. Preserving the inertia of the espionage subterfuge of the film they are adapting, these books prioritize depth over invention. Within these pages, a reader will not find whole-cloth new scenes, nor altered plot developments but instead a light, frothy marrow of context enveloping the bone structure of the film. Through brief glimpses into the simmering romantic chemistry between hero and villain, or the even briefer exposition that our hero is so good at hanging from the ceiling because he was a virtuoso gymnast, (laughs) novelizations delve into character without ever getting lost up their own ass about it. We are your hosts, a loose coalition of novelization enthusiasts. My name is Andrew Overby.
1: And I'm Hannah Blackman. Mission Impossible is a 1996 spy thriller directed by Brian De Palma. The film acts as a sequel and soft reboot to the Mission Impossible TV series from the 1960s. It follows Ethan Hunt, the point man for a top secret team within the Impossible Missions Force, a subsect of the CIA, when Ethan's team is sent to Prague to thwart a rogue agent stealing secrets, the target and every team member save Ethan himself is horribly murdered. The operation, it turns out, was a sham, an internal mole hunt. The rogue agent being a real agent meant to root out that mole on Ethan's own team. And with Ethan being Sorry, I'm too excited. And with This is Ethan one of your being, big ones, Hannah. It's huge. This I is, love this. I'm, is excited. Like... I'm so excited to get into it. I'm like, let's get past we, we haven't it. We all touched know what happens. Any of
0: we haven't touched any of your ride or dies. So there was yeah. Mission Impossible, Flatliners. What are the other big ones?
1: Um, uh, I don't know. We did Spider-Man 3, which is a big we did novelization 3. for me. I guess that
0: was a big one for you.
1: You know, but yeah, this is huge. And someday we'll do Flatliners, my favorite movie of all time. Okay. <laughs> anyway... With Ethan being the only survivor the IMF to have decided that they've found their man? Will Ethan be able to prove his innocence before being killed or captured by his own employers? And with the IMF chasing the wrong person, who will stop the true traitor from unmasking every undercover agent the Americans have all over the world? It's risky. The novelization of Mission Impossible was written by Peter Bersochini, based on a story by David Kep and Steve Zalian, you think? And the screenplay mm. by David Kep and Robert Town. It was released by Pocket Books in 1996. Of I course,
0: Barsocchiini most famous for being the High School Musical guy.
1: Oh. I
2: just I looked he, this up and I was oh I was stunned by it. <gasps> he wrote them all, I think. Oh my god!
1: No wonder this thing rips. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, 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 I,
0: oh. I should have added a line to the end there too, where this is tragically the only novelization. Of a Mission Impossible film, which feels criminal and uh, could have really opened up a a different path for Barsicini. But he became Mm. just the high school musical guy.
1: Well, also, uh, that's a pretty high bar. You know, you can't be ashamed of that.
0: We love it. Um, Great. Our first guest today, returning from our episode on sneakers, as well as returning from a lifetime of friendship with Hannah. (laughs) Matt Fisher, how are you doing?
3: Not bad. How's it going? It's, yeah, it's a pleasure I, to be here.
0: I am I'm thrilled to have you back. Uh, Matt, could you let the listeners know about the, the little bit of um, trickery that you experienced in, in receiving this book, almost a spy thriller in its own right?
3: Oh, there were twists and turns even before, uh, you know, as soon as my involvement in this uh, episode began, uh, uh, you delightfully arranged to have the book sent to me. And due to a mislabeling at the Amazon Fulfillment Center, um, the the novelization of the, the sticker identifying a novelization of Mission Impossible was a, appended to a, a book of... Uh, Folk Remedies and Doctor's Secrets that, uh, for, um, which I cracked it open. And if that book had contained the actual novelization of Mission Impossible, oh man, how fitting that would have been. Uh, but a little bit of, uh, a little bit of returning and resending and, uh, everything was straightened up.
0: I love the idea that anytime they get an order for a novelization of a 90s film. They send out instead a book to help a person get well. It's true. It's not a bad impulse. (laughs) (laughs) Our second guest today, coming on to Authorize for the first time, the writer for one of the writers for the show Solar Opposites, which is having its fourth season premiere this August,
2: Joe Saunders, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Hi. Th- thanks for having me. I, ch- I realized I chimed in a little early when I, you brought up High School Musical. But...
0: It's fine. No, it's really good. It's really good. Uh, it's really good. In, in fact, those games that we record at the end of the episode, sometimes I feel like I don't make it clear to people that they can talk then. And then I'm <laughs> like, shit, I wish they'd been talking more. So you're doing great. Okay, great. I just, to, I just wanted to let
2: you know that I'm aware of my own mistakes. and <laughs> <laughs> mm.
0: Joe, aside from hearing you on various podcasts over the years, the reason that I thought you might be a good fit for this Mission Impossible episode is uh, you've made your love for the series pretty, pretty widely known, uh, just tweeting about it. <laughs> so what is your history with Mission Impossible? Uh, and also, if applicable, have you ever read a film novelization before?
2: Um, yes. Uh, yes, I have read a film novelization before. Uh, To answer your first question, um, I'm just a big fan of the Mission Impossible series. I remember seeing this Mission Impossible when it came out in theaters in, was it 1996? Did we say that earlier? Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, I remember remember that summer. That was the summer of Independence Day, I think in Twister, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, Sounds right. um, So that was very big. And then just, it's been a wild ride with this franchise over the years. And I feel like it's now at its peak. And I'm so excited for Dead Reckoning Part 1. Coming out in two weeks or something like that? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's interesting. I can't believe we made it to
0: the release of this movie, which has been pushed back so many times, and they haven't dropped the part one. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, they're coming out with part two, so what are you going to do?
0: <laughs> I, I get it, but I I thought, and, and 2023 is rolling back this theory for me, but I thought that we had decided... That part one, part two was long in the tooth or, or bad marketing. Now suddenly everybody's doing it again.
3: Well, one good thing is that it signals that uh, that something is not going to be in the film. That something has been there. They're not trying to shoehorn. They're, you're not, they're not sending you in for a three and a half hour glut there's uh they're going to leave you wanting more which is a a sensation that uh you don't get to feel as much today as you did perhaps in years previous Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm,
2: mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i feel like the last big part one was dune and i feel like a lot of people didn't realize Mm -hmm. dune was going to be just a part one like i i think like they hid that in the the posters and the ads and then people were in the theater i think it says part one at the beginning (laughs) and i think i remember even my wife being like wait (coughs) what this is a part one." (laughs)
1: <laughs> this is already a three and a half hour movie. Just, it's only the first part. Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's how I felt. The thing about Dune is I went into Dune knowing that it was a part one, part two, and I was still somehow really upset by the ending. I, I think I didn't know that it was going to literally feel like half a movie. I thought they were going to atten- attempt more of an arc within the first one. And it specifically, it just pissed me off that the movie ended with Zendaya going, uh, this is just see you in part two (laughs) yeah Yeah, she literally came out and she was like turn off your phones the movie starts soon it's like no
1: this is how i felt with across the spider verse where they did drop the part one and then it feels like a very incomplete movie Mm, and i was like no if i had known this was part one i would have felt differently about this annoying cliffhanger you didn't give me a complete story with your complete title i trust that our best friends tom and Macquarie are going to give us something that's both complete and titillating for the next movie they're masters of the craft i'm not concerned yeah. by their part one you know joe in
0: 1996 what's the context of you going to see this movie uh and what's your takeaway from it at the time
2: 1996. I'm 13 years old, uh, so I'm. this is, I think, one of my first like big movie summers where I'm like aware of a summer movie thing. I'm aware that it's like, oh, this, better movies <laughs> to me <laughs> come out during the summer. So I'm very excited. I'm very pumped. I've read articles in the newspaper about the movies coming out, and I'm really excited for this Mission Impossible movie. Uh, And I don't think I liked it when I saw it. I think I was like confused. I think it was like slightly (laughs) too confusing for me, (laughs) which says probably a lot about me as a 13 year old, Um, because now I like it and I don't think it's confusing. Um, But I think at the time I liked I, I liked the aesthetics of the movie and I liked like the action and I thought I liked all the spy stuff. But like it was just a little too. There's a a little clever. There's a little kind of like Brian De Palma cleverness, I think, at some points in this movie. That me as a kid, I was like, "What is going on? Wait, one guy is telling him something, and he's thinking about something else. What is? I don't. I can't track it." (laughs) Um, But as I've gotten older and uh, hopefully more mature, I've I've grown. My appreciation for it has has really shot up.
0: I totally agree that that is the most sort of experimental sequence in the movie, and also uh, looking back on it now, knowing De Palma's filmography better, it feels kind of the most De Palma-esque. Uh, it's, it's so fascinating that this movie did that in 96, because it feels like the sort of thing you would do in the fourth or fifth movie of a series that is known for twists, is go, this time, the character has figured out the twist before it happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for it to be in the first one is so
2: so daring and so interesting yes totally there's a really great i don't know if you guys have seen it there's a great documentary about brian de palma i think called de palma that's directed by noah bombach um and it's just him telling stories about his movies and him talking about work i always i'm like why did brian de palma decide to do this like why does he do the movies he does they always seem kind of like weird and random but like him talking about how excited he was like for the different sequences of this and planning that sequence and planning like the you know, the drop down on the cords in the CIA headquarter like that. You really like see like, oh, this is a guy who just loves coming up. He's like overflowing with ideas like this. And sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. <laughs> um, but it's a blast. And that, yeah, that kind of thing. Like, I love that. I love that sequence now. I think it's like really cool and um, feels like the kind of thing that would be very difficult to get in a big budget movie like this now. I don't know. I,
0: I feel as if, uh, and Hannah, I'm sure you have thoughts on this, but I feel as though Rogue Nation is the Mission Impossible movie since the first one that has most gotten back to sneak-arounds. Mm. As opposed to... It mm-hmm. has its huge spectacle. It has its ghost protocol DNA in it, but it also yeah. gets back to the, we're going to pretend to be the this we're going to sneak in here. The
1: climactic thing at the end of that movie is really like Ethan Hunt sitting at a table with the villain <laughs>
0: saying, yes. I
1: figured you out, and here's how we're going to go from here. So... <clears throat> Yeah,
0: Matt Fisher, you, and you're learning it now, maybe you figured it out uh, (laughs) implicitly, but you are only allowed to come unauthorized to do sneak around movies. Sure. Uh, Having Uh done Sneakers and now Mission Impossible. You can do Ocean's Eleven if you want. But if you, were, if you said, hey, I want to do Mona Lisa Smile, we'd say, get the fuck out of here.
3: Understandably so. Yeah, that, would be a great, uh, that would be a great decision. This is, this is a great sneak around movie. And I feel like in that way, um, uh, for all the ways that it breaks with the tradition of the TV show, it certainly does less so, I think, than subsequent movies. And you know the the TV show. Part of the reason why the whole, the whole original cast sort of uh, disavowed uh, this movie was because of the flashy set pieces and the sort of action bent of it. Although there's very little shooting, um, but it, the idea that they were thinking that about this movie.
0: Now that we have right. five more that are hanging onto helicopters and
3: <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, I love the. I mean, what what could be better for Brian De Palma, especially of. Uh, 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 A movie full of people filming each other and then watching each other, looking at each other on (laughs) on television screens, uh, tailor-made.
0: So, Matt, what is your uh, history with this franchise? Did you see this one when it came out? Did you catch up later on?
3: I saw this one in the theater when it came out. It was a great summer for movies. Um, And uh, I remember... I, th- I, My impression then is sort of my impression now, which is that the set pieces are really great and some of the scenes in between really play, but as it feels... A little light. There, are su- there. Are subsequent, I, I think this the second Mission Impossible movie gives even more the impression of here are set pieces that we want to do, and we've written some spy, you know, inter interludes to go between them. Um, but I really, really liked it, and then it it led to one of my favorite, basically the the best thing I've ever seen on MTV. I don't know if we've discussed this before. I may have brought this up on the sneakers episode, but um, Martin Landau, who had been on the Mission Impossible TV series, um, and was part of the crew who all refused to be in this, uh, to, to have anything to do with this movie, went to the premiere and the premiere was televised live on MTV and they had Kennedy live on the red carpet, interviewing <laughs> people, um, uh, as they walked into the mission Impossible uh, um, premiere and she recognizes Martin Landau, which, which is, a which I don't know. Good for her. The guy's and got she, quite a <laughs> jaw. But doesn't realize that Martin Landau has never seen the TV series. So she says to Martin Landau, "Martin Landau, so nice to have you here. What on earth are you doing at the premiere of a Mission Impossible movie?" And, <laughs> oh, no. and he goes off on her, on, and it is televised. He reads her the Riot Act, and it's it's very difficult to I've, every every six months or so I try to find a copy of it on the internet. It's very it's been disappeared down the memory hall. I think the last the last thing I saw was footage. Uh, divorced from audio but um uh that sticks in my mind as uh, as a um a sort of uh an, a rare unplanned moment on mtv an unprogrammed uh uh <laughs> interlude uh on mtv so i love it and and uh, i've seen all the movies since and it they really do heighten this is this this is the beginning you know the the wick that gets lit it really happens for Tom Cruise. He sets up at Paramount. He gets the money. He gets $80 million to make an action movie. And he hasn't turned. He hasn't looked back since.
0: Joe, have you seen any of the, uh, the Mission Impossible TV series? Hannah and I just watched some for the first time.
2: I, I have. I've only recently watched it because it's all on. There's like one of the free streamers like Tubi or Freebie has a Mission Impossible channel. That Ooh. you can put on that just plays Mission Impossible episodes all day long, and I was putting it. I think during the pandemic, sometime I was like, "This is good, like background <laughs> stuff," and I, I wanted to watch them. But the show is very the show is. I don't know. What do What do you guys like the show or what's What's the feeling on the we show? We
1: watched five random episodes, okay. um, and we <laughs> liked it. <laughs> I would say I loved it. Uh, it. I
0: can't imagine how you had them on in the background and had any semblance of an idea of what was happening because there were episodes of that show that started with, and of course we sent in this spy, but then he changed his name to this and then he was killed and replaced by this man. And there, there are episodes where I was staring at the screen and rewinding and trying to figure it out.
2: <laughs> yes, I was totally- And I
0: just went for the vibes alone and I was like-
1: It's
2: fine. (laughs) I I was vibes also, where I had no idea what was going on. And it's so slow. It is unbelievably, like, I found it incredible. I was like, well, I'm going to sit and try to watch this episode. And I'd be like, oh, my God, it's been 15 minutes and, like, nothing has happened.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The, The set piece that opens the movie Mission Impossible, where they are tricking this man into thinking he's killed a woman, would be the final piece of a Mission Impossible episode. Yes. That's the big culmination of a plan for the TV show.
3: Well, part of why I really like beginning the movie that way is that they do, it's the last time in, the seri- in, the, in this series of movies, I think, where they do the television trick of having Ethan Hunt impersonate a person who looks strangely like Ethan Hunt. My favorite move from the old television show was they would introduce some uh, tin pot dictator in a made-up South American country who looked a lot like Martin Landau in brownface. <laughs> and then, they, <laughs> and then, and then they, would, they would bring a picture of him to Martin Landau and say, can you double this man? And he's like, yes, I think I can. <laughs> it's
0: my, my favorite line from Spy. You've all seen Spy? Mm-hmm. Yes. Where the, the uh, I, you know, I've saved the world on eight occasions. I've stopped a nuclear war. I've impersonated Barack Obama in front of Congress <laughs> when he was in dire health, and Melissa McCarthy just going in blackface. That's not right, <laughs> <laughs> Hannah. Yeah. Th- this is this is your moment. This is this is one of your. I mean, yeah. it's one of your most major movies, and mm-hmm. also one of the novelizations that was an existing part of your life mm-hmm. before we started this podcast. At what point did you come into contact
1: with the Mission Impossible book? Um, I think before Fallout came out, I rewatched all the movies in one day and was like, well, that's not enough Mission Impossible. <laughs> what else can I have? So I, I hunted down the novelization, which I think at that point in my life, I'd kind of forgotten that novelizations existed and was just coming back to them. So I got myself a little copy and I read it and was so delighted by some of the exciting details that are revealed to us here, like Ethan's gymnastics career, <laughs> a beautiful little nugget. You Such know. a
0: prideless bit of novelizing to go, you know how he's good at uh, body stuff? He used to be a good gymnast. It's like it's, I, it's so many writers would do too much with that or- yeah, Barzini really also just throws a dash in.
1: Tom Cruise is built like a male gymnast. No, <laughs> like he is point. 100% built that way. Watching the movie last night again, I was looking at him, at, you know, in the safe house after the failed mission, he's like in those high-waisted trousers and his little wife Peter. and I was like that's a gymnast's outfit. He's a gymnast. We have it. Um And when some, I feel like Mission Impossible 3 tries to be like he was in the Special Forces. And I was like, bitch, no, he was a gymnast. (laughs) Of course, he didn't have like a real military career, you dumb piece of shit, J.J. Abrams. Um, Anyway, so yes, I already owned this book. I had already read this book when we were here today. Excited to come back to it and revisit it and always happy to revisit the first Mission Impossible, which I really, really love. For a number of reasons. I like that it's low-key. I am obsessed with Ethan's first team who all get murdered. It's very sad to me that we don't have five to ten books about those people having adventures. I would read every single one of them. A hundred times.
0: <laughs> we could, I mean, we could still make them.
1: It feels kind of... I mean, I think that... I also at some point hunted down the one Mission Impossible comic book. Oh. <laughs> um, mm. A single issue. That came out because tom cruise as we all know has never allowed his likeness rights to be out in the world and so you don't have little action figures of him you don't have comic books and the video game is like a rarity the fact that there's anything from mission impossible one is sort of like the last moment when his face is on things in that kind of right. way and I feel like that has to be why there aren't more novelizations, too, is he was like, I don't want other people making decisions about me my character and my franchise Put right. a stop to it. Um, so this is a fun, interesting little relic. It,
0: he has the forethought that Brad Pitt did not have for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. If <laughs> you write a book, don't make me the most despicable piece of shit ever. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it might change the way people relate to me and my character. Who knows?
0: Uh, before yeah. we jump in on the book, we, we've, we ran this down with you, Matt, when you came on for Sneakers. Joe, what, um, what was the novelization that you had read in the past?
2: Um, what have I read in the past? The, uh, I mean, one I was thinking about yesterday was, I'm sure I read uh, The Phantom Menace when that mm-hmm. came out. Mm-hmm. That, I think, was uh, mm-hmm. also like a big selling book, I, I feel like it was, when that movie came out. Um, I read that at the time, and that has like, I think I was like kind of like turned off. I was like, ah, I get novelizations after that. <laughs> um, but the other story I always like think about when I think about novelizations was, um, I remember it was like father's day in 1989. I, I don't know how I remember this, but I, I was, I was, a little, I was very young and I was with my mom and we were having to buy my dad, a, a a father's day present at the mall. And there was like two choices there. My mom was like, well, your dad really would want, there was like a thing he had specifically said he wanted or we were at a bookstore and she was like, well, he's already said he wants this, you know. Tom Clancy book or whatever it was we should get him that and I was like yeah but I think he would like uh the novelization of Batman (laughs) 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 which they had there and had like a big Batman logo on the front which was very appealing to me and I was like we should get him this and she was like okay (laughs) <laughs> and so I gave my dad the novelization of Batman for um for Father's Day that year, and I don't think he ever. I'm sure, certain he never read it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's a very real thing giving giving a piece of media to a parent, and then you never get a review. Yeah, and you go, I am not going to ask about it. Had mm-hmm. <laughs> did the Phantom Menace one? Did you read it prior to seeing the movie, or after you'd already seen it? I'm
2: probably I after like informs, seeing. I, oh, definitely yeah. after seeing the movie. Um yeah, probably just hoping that there was like more, you know, cool Star Wars details inside of it.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think what was- did it feel like to come to Mission Impossible this time around, having such a—I uh, almost said sycophantic—that's so insulting—having such a positive relationship oh to the movie, and uh, and coming at it from from this sort of novel point of view. How did it feel?
2: It was interesting. I thought. Um, I guess we'll get into talking about the book. Um, The book I found, like, very easy to read. You know, it was, like, a very quick read. And I was, like, the details of the backstory of, like, uh, that first team, like Hannah was saying, like, I thought were really interesting. And I really did, like, the, the author's attempt to, like, kind of flesh out Ethan Hunt's backstory and the stuff with his family and kind of things that, like, don't get addressed in the movies now. Like, Ethan's, like, kind of as a character. And I feel like they would never mention Ethan's family now and, like one of these things i don't know what dead reckoning is going to do but i thought that was really like i felt like that kind of like filled out the world a little bit and i um i was like oh this is like the fun of these things like or this is like at least like to read to read this book now i was like oh it kind of is like filling in things and like kind of uh, the backstory of like luther and like the other guy like everyone basically every time a character gets introduced the writer then goes into a long backstory about them and how they got here and i appreciated that <laughs>
1: It's so funny when Krieger is introduced, and the novelizationist is just like, Well, he was French, so let that. <laughs>
2: he's French
0: color and he's
1: mean. <laughs> is you understand what that means, right?
3: And all that that implies.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: It's such a funny thing about just books in general. Uh, I, I've been reading uh, East of Eden, and my girlfriend was asking me about it, and she said, What's going on in it? And I said, Well, this I just met these two brothers, and it seems to be kind of a Cain and Abel situation. One of them doesn't seem trustworthy. And she went, What? what did he do that made you think he wasn't trustworthy? And I went, well, it's a book. So every line is like this shifty fucker who, (laughs) you know, which this book does so much is just introduces a character. And it's like his virtues emanated out of him. He seemed like such a cool dude. And then introduces someone else like that murderous glint in his eye.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It does work really hard to maintain the twist for you, though. To which I give it a lot of credit,
0: absolutely, and there are some really funny inflection points in this book, you know the chavel the Chavel. The challenge of the novelizationist is that they have to write twists that work on the page and also still work as a twist, and so there's a moment in basically chapter two here where uh Phelps kills uh jack on the elevator and it's like something was going wrong with the elevator phelps pushed some buttons then the elevator started moving just removing all causality (laughs) and you read it back and you go of course the buttons moved the elevator
1: That son of a bitch.
3: (laughs) It's a challenge, you know. the, the The revelation of information is so interesting and so important in a spy movie, but especially one as visual as this. This is one where De Palma would take great pains. To do those things visually, you know, we talked about uh, the when uh, later on when Phelps has his monologue and and you see you see uh, Ethan Hunt's understanding of what's going on. So hard. I'm always so fascinated to, when those things are coming up in a novelization to see what what goes and what stays and how that uh, how that's played. Mm-hmm.
0: I think when we say that the book maintains the twist, it doesn't tell you upfront that Phelps is evil. But I do think that it spoon feeds you that Ethan has beaten the twist. So if you're the type of viewer, which I was as a child, who is just kind of baffled by the the separation between Phelps is saying one thing, but Ethan's imagining another, this book really does go, Phelps was saying things, but they didn't make sense. And Ethan thought about how they didn't make sense. And there's that line about, uh, he was answering questions I wasn't even asking, no. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Matt, what about you? How'd you feel about the book? Just broad thoughts up top, coming in, haven't seen the movie a bunch of times.
3: Uh I really liked it. It was an easy read, it was breezy, and it, um, you know, it very much is is a book that follows the follows the movie, you know, deepens and uh, expands on motivations and backstories, but follows the plot very closely. Um the, my overall impression was the romance that the, I think uh, in order to you know, add back in some of what's lost through the sort of visual storytelling, it starts out page one, the, the love triangle is set and uh and plays out for the rest of the book and so i really like that uh i like that addition that seemed to take sort of a background in the movie although it may have been through deleted scenes and things like that in the pre in the trailer for the movie there's uh there's uh romantic looking uh material that uh may have hit the cutting room floor um but I really loved it, and, uh, and yeah, it puts you right back. I, the, one of my favorite parts is in, in the end when uh, Jim Phelps re- reveals himself on the train, and he's described as wearing like a parachute parachutist's outfit. I oh, thought that was a funny <laughs> funny speed bump for a novelization. <laughs> <laughs> How do uh, I
0: describe this extremely strange costume, he said? <laughs> <laughs> um,
3: to jump in time, on the text. Good times had by all.
0: Mm. the the book begins with i I like to read the first line of the book because you know it sets sets the tone for the whole novel the book begins with the uh, chapter header kiev and it says a steely cold rain beat down on kiev drawing oil out of the roadways and infusing the old city with an industrial smell at 2 a.m the streets were deserted except for occasional cars splashing through puddles and squealing around corners shattering the steady rhythm of the rain The only people on the streets at this hour were either drunk or dangerous. Most likely both. Terrific first paragraph in that it gets us to... We talk about this on the podcast a lot. Uh, The Novelizations are often trying to invoke a type of book you're already familiar with. So that if you're going, I haven't read a movie novelization, what will this be like? This book is describing the street in a way that makes you go, okay, paperback thriller airport paperback that sort of thing but then within the one paragraph it does that descriptive stuff and also introduces the danger element you know we don't know who's drunk and we don't know who's maliciously evil which is basically a theme that'll go through the entire series are you a bystander or are you actively my foe so uh Mm -hmm. just thought it was a cool cool way to jump in
1: the whole first page is, like, great scene setting. It it then takes you, like, here's the street we're on, here's the building we're in, here's the window we look through to see the dead girl. It, like, feels very, like, a cinematic crane shot mm-hmm. in through a window to take mm-hmm. you into the moment, which I thought was great. And really. very De Palma voyeuristic. And turns boyaristic. you into the story. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good shit. <laughs>
2: Yeah, that's it looks a, start strong. That's a great point about it how it did feel like very cinematic. I, I, at first, I was like, oh, is this like leaning too much into just like kind of describing the feeling of watching the movie? But I think that's actually like a really good thing. Like that, like it did, it was like a fun, it was done in like a fun way and not like in a way where it felt like a shortcut. Um, mm-hmm. where you really could like visualize so much of the, the stuff and fo- focus on individual details like you would in a movie or like if like Brian De Palma was like, you know, directing the scene.
3: And it preserves a reveal that the movie skips over. The movie um, opens on um, Emilio Estevez, uh, essentially giving away the idea that the you know that the the opening scene is a con, whereas this stays with the the fictional you know reality that this uh, poor Mark is going through, and only reveals later that. Uh, that Emilio Estevez is in the closet, is like inches away, yes. constantly uh, about to be walked in on.
1: This is one of those funny novelizations where like half the character names are different. Oh, really? Or whatever. Well, yeah, like everybody's last names on the team are different. Mm-hmm. I did think like, Ethan ooh, Hant
0: was weird. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like Ethan is the same, but like... Jack in the movie is Jack Harmon. Here is Jack Kiefer. Sarah is Sarah Davis in the movie. And here she's Sarah Norman. There's just like these little things.
3: Yeah. Uh um, Which is sort of
1: like the fun Fun color that that you sometimes get in novelizations when they like hadn't totally locked down the script. But you had to start writing the book. I, mean, I noticed also, these things because again I'm deeply obsessed with this first team and I've put a lot of thought into them. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, I think about that a lot too, you know. I agree with you. I think one thing that the movie gestures towards and maybe it's just maybe it's just that it would be handled differently nowadays, but the idea that there is a fake team in the in the opening credits they show, they introduce this team as if it is the team that's going to carry us through the movie. And, um, and my understanding from, you know, this, this, and that kind of trivia page and these things is the evolution of the story started with the idea that Ethan Hunt might have been a member of the original IMF team full of, uh, 60, 60 and 70 year old spies who were then killed off. And that's part of the reason why none of them wanted to do it. Oh Um, but I like, I very, I, I almost wish they leaned harder into the idea that this is the super team. To me, Emilio Estevez and also, um, what's her name? I'm blanking on her name now. Uh, Sarah Davies.
1: Scott Thomas.
3: You know, those Uh, are big name actors who, you know, are you surprised to see killed? But I think it would be amazing to see, you know, the league of Tom Cruise's uh, all all eat it a half hour into the movie, I think would be even more fun.
1: I mean, I really think that the movie's great strength is the first 20 minutes. It, like, sets you up so perfectly for everything else that Ethan goes through for, like, five movies, basically. The chemistry in that team is, like, so easy, so natural. You immediately understand that these are people who are, like, close. They really matter to Ethan. And so when they're all brutally murdered in the span of, like, 10 minutes, that would affect him in a pretty specific way. And he spends the rest of this movie, like, on a razor's edge of, like, absolutely collapsing. And the first 20 minutes have to make that believable, and they do. For they me. do.
3: And it goes like, and It, I, it, it, it demonstrates that Tom
1: and Emilio are, like, fr- have been friends for 10 years already and have, like, a that... They have it. It's there. Hasta
3: lasagna, you don't get any on you. Um, My man. (laughs) And it's it's kind of a difference between serialized television storytelling and movies too, is that even though this is the impossible missions force that only does the most high stakes impossible missions, in the movies, it can't even be that. It can't even be an impossible mission. It needs to be a blown impossible mission, you know, it needs to be the one day that, you know, where everything goes wrong for Ethan Hunt. Um Well, which, this uh, is the
0: one movie where the title actually makes sense, right? I mean, it, it, it Impossible Missions Force, who knows why they called it that in the TV series cuz they were accomplishing those missions every episode. Uh <laughs> this is the one movie where the twist is that the mission was not accomplishable as stated.
4: Hmm. Hmm.
0: Wow! Everyone was surprised when he made a really mind good blown. Point. Too surprised. <laughs> <laughs> the beginning of this movie, the thing with uh, the this Godfather Two esque scene of uh, I, I blacked out and killed someone. I don't know what happened. How much of it? do we think is actually clear in the movie? And how much are we just riding on the vibes of a type of guy in a type of situation? Because as I'm reading the first chapter, I'm going, what did I think was happening here? I didn't know who this guy was. I didn't know that he thought he had killed a gangster's girlfriend. I didn't know that the person Tom Cruise was posing as was some sort of fixer within his criminal organization. Uh, do, are these things that were apparent to everyone else, or does the movie just succeed on its uh, inertia alone?
1: There's a dead girl in the room. One guy is flipping out about it, and the other guy's like, "You called me for help. You got a trade. Yeah. That's enough for me."
3: Cool. And that all happens on a screen within a screen. You know, in the in yeah. the movie, you're not mm-hmm. in the room for the the entire setup is you know viewed. Uh, um on this sort of uh, diegetic uh, camera which is uh soda palma
1: the book gives you a lot more information which i think you'd need because of the amount of time you spend on the page of a book if you when we talk about this a lot but like when you have the time to really think about what you're reading and pause in a way that you don't when watching a movie it has to give you enough background that you think yep yep that makes sense as opposed to rolling with the bare minimum of information and a good vibe which many movies can get away with.
0: That's a great point. I think the Thank the you. way that they talk about on <clears throat> in this first chapter what is going on and why this guy is so afraid adds color, but it's not it's not crucial. You know, he's talking about how they make it specific to the Russian government and Russian crime, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Where it, it, they're saying, you know, the. This organization is is a criminal organization that is tied into the government. And so to kill this guy's girlfriend basically puts me on the hit list for both of them, which is, is a cool bit of detail. Uh, the Claire stuff at the beginning of the book is we get a lot of extra color on the relationship between Ethan and Claire. I think the things that surprise me the most are... Ethan knows that his relationship with Claire is really sus and that everyone has probably noticed. And there is a passage in the first chapter about how he's going to go to Jim and say, Hey, it's obvious your wife and I are horny for each other. Can we get her off the team?
1: (laughs) I don't think I should work with her anymore. (laughs)
2: Um yeah, which I, I loved all that sorry, stuff. Sorry, go ahead, Joe. I, I thought all that stuff was great and really a thing that I seemed like very subtle like very subtle in the movie that is really maybe not even like not even literal at all in the movie. Uh, I really like that and I thought that was like a really interesting element throughout this whole movie. Um that clearly I think was cut from the film. Like they must have shot and maybe just Tom, Tom Cruise was like, you know, me and a romantic scene. It just doesn't. I don't know if anyone's buying it. <laughs>
1: There is definitely a deleted scene, which is in the book, where after, he, after Phelps reveals himself to Ethan, he goes back to the safe house, and Claire is like, come come here, and they kiss. Um, and I think the deleted scene kind of implies that then they have sex, which is not the moment. <laughs> um, and I understand why you'd be like, why did we put that here? This is not the time for these two <laughs> characters to finally consummate their tension. Snip, snip, get rid of that.
0: The thing I really like about the idea that he's going to tell Phelps about it is I like that their team feels so close and has such a level of respect that that amount of communication could occur, he thinks, where he could go, mm. uh, hey, you know what? Usually it'd be a little screwed up to say I'm attracted to your wife, but you know we're working in these crazy close quarters, and I think it's just better for all of us if we're separate. I think that that adds this level of family feeling to the, mm-hmm. the Voight-Cruz thing that maybe isn't present in the movie. He feels a lot more sibling-bonded to the rest of the team to me than he does father-son-bonded to Voight.
3: Oh, sure. I mean, his their first scene together in the movie is, or to go for it the other way, their first scene together in the book is a long argument about whether or not they should be on this thing. And, you know, they give they really give it to each other. And Tom Cruise or Ethan Hunt is, you know, talking about how he's straight from Kiev and can't be here. And is this really smart? Whereas in the movie... And, and that establishes this real bond between them, the sort of father son thing, you know. Um, whereas in the movie, it's just sort of, can we get some better coffee in here? Um, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah, it's a very different vibe.
0: The book also does some work to try to signal that the Jim Phelps twist is coming uh, in in a way that a, a movie simply can't. So on page fourteen, we've been in Ethan's head for a while. He's thinking about. I have the hots for Claire. I can't believe Jim actually married Claire. He hates uh, agents being in relationships. And that leads him to the thought that Jim Phelps married one of his own operatives signaled to some within IMF a change in his professional standards and to others that Claire must be an extraordinary woman. Ethan Hunt believed the latter. Like Ethan, Jim did not readily reveal his personal thoughts and emotions and he had done a good job of hiding his relationship with Claire. When the marriage was announced, however, Ethan reacted with little surprise. He had worked several missions with Claire, and had thought often about how he might get to know her even better. His respect for Phelps and IMF had kept him from acting too quickly with her. Then, quite suddenly, she was married to Ethan's mentor and best friend. At that point, there was nothing for him to do but move on, and do his job, which is cool because it bakes in the idea that he's shoving down these emotions that will actually prove to be a problem, and he has this uh, dichotomy in his head, or or this decision tree, where he goes either Jim Phelps changed his professional standards, or fell in love with Aphrodite herself, yeah. and then <laughs> he decides on two, but we learn later in the movie it's one.
1: <laughs> it's it's so... um fun for me to watch this book be like ethan's a consummate professional and then at every turn um i mean this is skipping ahead a little but when claire shows back up at the safe house after everything gone wrong and she's like you got here too early what were you doing his instinct is always kind of to go rogue yeah he's always going to follow his own instincts over the rules or the imperative of the mission because he is like He's not good at keeping his emotions in check. He's a very emotional guy who like feels a lot of love for the people in his life and is willing to do anything for them, which is the movies just continue to crank up and up and up and up, which is great for me. <laughs> <laughs> but exciting to see the groundwork laid here where he's like, oh, right, I should have waited until 4 a.m. to come back to the safe house. I should have followed the abort, but I couldn't. Didn't feel right. Had and to do something else.
0: At the end of the book he goes to Claire's funeral and he has a a, a little bit of uh, cognition where he goes, you know, you're not supposed to do this thing if you're in the IMF, but I'm really good.
1: <laughs> and really sad. And really about to quit my job.
0: Right, right. But it, yeah. it's... It, 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 the whole plot of this movie is predicated on the idea that Phelps believes in the system is supposed to be you know, this, this star veteran agent, and then comes to go, no, but my decision making is better. I feel like I'm not being treated well, I feel like I need to get, you know, uh, find my own lane to success. And so it doesn't quite work for me when the book adds in Ethan also doing that, Ethan also going, I'm a good company boy, but sometimes I know better.
1: See, the difference is, I think that Ethan is not a good company boy. He's just a good boy. (laughs) (laughs) and jim phelps here is not a good boy he's a bad boy
0: he's a he's a bad boy Uh, he's a selfish
1: boy and ethan is not bad
0: uh joe and matt we hannah and i have an episode on the tv series coming out in a few days but we we discussed on that one uh what happened to jim phelps (laughs) holy moly oh (laughs) goes from the most paternal warmest man to a man exactly the same age who is like a snake come to life.
1: <laughs> I do think that Jim, John Voight is not perhaps the right casting for this twist to totally work, because he's slimy from second one. He has such a waxy, suspicious face, you know? Yes. Um, yeah. He's not it. But I do appreciate that the book tries really hard to clarify a little bit why Jim is unhappy. On page 21, it gives you the clarification of the hierarchy of Kitteridge and... Um, And Jim. When Jim Phelps, a former government operative himself, decided to run his own show by starting the IMF, his contacts at the CIA were more than happy to have a competent team of covert agents who could be called upon to perform missions that were too dangerous or politically perilous, blah, 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 assembled his own team, made his own rules, and called the shots every step of the way. But in the wake of the Aldrich Ames scandal, Eugene Kitteridge was brought in to clean up the CIA's covert operations. He still wanted Jim Phelps in the IMF, but he wanted operational oversight on all of imf's missions so it's like laying the ground immediately that phelps is like i'm being undercut this is fucking bullshit nobody tells me what to do i'm mr imf mm-hmm. it's there it's
0: there yeah it definitely makes but, sense
1: i love and all the, that everybody sorry. hates kitteridge as a boss and mm-hmm. maybe he would drive you to tr- being a traitor <laughs> I love what all a the
0: Kittridge stuff in the book. I think that they do a great job of of explaining why he's so annoying to work under, as you say, Hannah. But also there's a passage late in the book where Ethan's going, Kittridge is going after my family because if this were a real threat, if I were really the mole and I was about to expose every undercover agent in the world that would be the right thing to do and that's why kittredge is good at his job which i did not expect that this book would go to bat for that character i thought that was really really funny Mm.
1: kittredge is a perfectly decent person and a very successful cia boss he just kind of sucks as a guy he's just like not nice
3: He's great, and and played so well in the movie by Henry Zernie. I love. Uh, oh yeah, he, this and um, Clear and Present Danger wow. are are the the Henry Zerny um, the oh just the Hall of Fame he the has- the crown jewels of the Henry Zerny uh, filmography.
1: He has so many funny line deliveries. Like he's making choices that are really different and funny that are great the the like you find something and you squeeze really funny <laughs> yeah. and good or i want him working at not pushed in alaska just mail him his clothes very funny <laughs> <laughs> he's adding such good color that very few other imf cia directors in the franchise bring they don't bring that level of of interest i find largely
3: well, they get ahead. dunked on. They're they're more there to be embarrassed when Ethan Hunt. They're constantly, <laughs> you know, looking at cars driving away or listening to radios that are playing gibberish or mm-hmm. things. You know, being embarrassed by Ethan Hunt. Mm-hmm. Kittred stays ahead, stays stays above the fray uh, better than a lot of the yeah. his character in subsequent movies.
2: <laughs> Joe, you were gonna yeah. say something. Oh, uh, I mean, I'm jumping ahead to the end, but like, there's a, a moment at the end where they're on the train that I thought, who's like uh, Kittridge's like sidekick guy, Barnes, Barnes, where Barnes, Barnes sees Claire and he's like, I shouldn't say anything because he'll be mad <laughs> or like yelling, <laughs> <laughs> and the I was passage. like, that's a very like boss, that's a very like employee knowing their boss type thought. <laughs> <laughs> the
0: the the passage in there, it it has some some verbiage along the lines of he thought he had seen Claire. But, if he, but he couldn't have seen Claire because Claire was blown into a million bits. But the way it's written was very confusing. I reread it a bunch of times. I was like, wait, he's saying if he saw Claire on the train, it'd be her in a million bits? <laughs> and I finally got it. I was like, oh, he's saying she can't be there. Okay.
1: Yeah, that is the culmination of when when they tried to catch Max... Barnes is like, Kitteridge is a really frustrating boss. Like they get a line there when they, when everything happens at headquarters with poor William Donlow and Donlow's like, Barnes, you're a nice guy, help me, right? And he just has to be like, Kitteridge though, (laughs) I can't. (laughs) Like that payoff of if he had the relationship with his boss where he could go, I think I just saw Claire Phelps even though we think she's dead. They might've caught them sooner (laughs) and the whole plan might've fallen apart in a different way. So it's a fun little thread.
0: I really like this uh, initial description of Kittredge when uh, Ethan goes to meet him at the aquarium. And it says, As in the pictures Ethan had seen, Kittredge Kittredge looked like a man accustomed to paperwork and committee meetings. He had the pallor of a bureaucrat, but the confident, forceful eyes of a person used to wielding power. Kittredge seemed in no hurry and in no particular distress. In fact he appeared to be enjoying his lobster. When Ethan was a couple of yards away, Kittredge gestured towards the empty seat at his table, put his fork down, and stood to shake Ethan's hand. Now, I don't know if Zerny's totally doing the I'm so kind of elitist that I'm having lobster during the mole hunt performance. <laughs> but other than that, this description, who knows if the character is cast or not, this is dead on. He had the pallor of a bur- bureaucrat, but his eyes are sort of fierce and way too intense. That's Henry. Yeah, definitely. Good stuff. that's good stuff.
1: I love this touch with the lobster. I mean, I don't want to skip over the death of Ethan's entire team. We can but jump all around. The, the stuff with the lobster is so good because it keeps, it's not in the movie. It keeps coming up in the scene and for me, it like echoes that increasingly tight Dutch angle thing that Brenda Palma does as the tension of that scene rakes up, where like every twenty seconds Ethan's like, fuck this guy and his fucking lobster. <laughs> like he's still fucking eating this. How dare he be doing this? this is so disrespectful. This is so uncool. And it just makes the you know, it it carries the same effect that you get in the movie through a totally different medium and touch in a way that I, I really dig. And yeah, how dare he? Well,
3: oh, and the he. story needs an antagonist, especially because of the fake out element of it. You know, mm-hmm. this is one. Of, this is one of the only Mission Impossible stories that doesn't revolve around a big bad guy. You know, or, or you know, where we're not we're not hunting someone down. We're not we're not being you know grilled by somebody. So uh, you know, especially early on, it's great to yeah, that lobster thing was crazy. But uh, you need to you need to establish your big bad.
2: Yeah, that's but, really interesting. I thought about that too while reading it. That this like. Movie doesn't have an obvious bad guy. Kittridge is kind of it, where you're like, oh, well, maybe he is Max or whatever, or uh, Job. Um, and, but there's, yeah, that's that's a really interesting thing. I'm not quite, uh, yeah, it's it feels like it's very difficult to pull that off in movies where there's obviously like an obstacle and like a rival, but like, you're not quite sure who it is. And it's like this, yeah, I don't know, that was great, I thought. I, I think Hannah touched on this before, <clears throat>
0: the, the the casting of Kittredge is so good because he seems slimy, and if they could have just pulled off the opposite and had Jim Phelps seem grandfatherly or whatever, it mm-hmm. would be this amazing switcheroo. Especially since it's the first movie in the series, we don't yet know that they're going to twist and turn us like that, and i am sure many people went into the movie and saw the kittredge character and just thought to themselves i bet that's the bad guy he seems like such a scuzz
2: yeah Mm -hmm.
0: it also
1: doesn't help that jim phelps is married to a woman who's like 30 years younger than him yes like that also doesn't put him in the best light and they have no uh romantic scenes together like jim and claire don't seem like they're in love The relationship it, is very strange to me.
0: Doesn't it seem odd that the movie and the book don't specify or even float the idea that Claire is sort of an evil mastermind who has disrupted his life? Like, obviously, he's complicit. I'm not trying to take Jim Phelps off the hook. But <laughs> the, he he's being a good company man. Then he gets married. Then he and his wife are into evil things together. And yet the book and movie want to maintain... Yeah, Claire was evil, but Jim's the real bad guy here. It feels to me like it's likely Claire's the real bad guy here.
3: Hmm.
0: It's not (laughs) to (laughs) me. Yeah, okay. Again, I am always doing
3: that. Well, she gets her one line. It's in on the train when um, when Ethan is in Jim Phelps' drag. She only essentially gets to be evil for one, you know, for less than a page, where she walks in and you know reveals herself, and then she's and then she's and then she's shot i could uh, that's that's a part of the movie and the book that i found kind of crazy just i guess to take her off the board for this final helicopter chase but um but yeah, the the idea, you know, again, it goes back to that idea of like there's really not a for a spy movie, there's really not a there's not a, you know, if 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 this is an update of James Bond, James Bond is defined by the sort of overdramatic, the dramatized bad guy with his lair and his plans and his schemes. And you really only see that in passing in this movie in in this in the movie and the book.
1: I think that if the Claire and Ethan romance was a little more r- romancy, and you really bought that they had something super special, uh, then you, you could carry this little sort of seductive thread of Jim has Claire. They have a romance. The two of them decide it's time to go bad. We're not getting enough out of this. And in order to do that, he's like, do the same thing to Ethan. Pull him in. Do the romance thing. Either we get him on our side too, or we throw him under the bus. Either way is fine. Use him. You know, I think like you and and given Ethan's relationship to Jim, which is like fatherly, theoretically supposed to be, there's like there's just a complicated little sexy thing in there that in a slightly more sex movie could could just be. I making yeah.
3: Sense? yeah. Oh, definitely. Well, Ethan is smitten from the jump. Mm-hmm. There's no, she, he doesn't have to be hooked. You know, that would be in a different, in a, in a sort of a different take on the genre. That would be her work, you know, to come back mm-hmm. and sort of, you know, fool him. Um, if
1: Ethan wasn't the most upright, good boy in the world, there would be a scene where she was like, what if we just take the money and run? Like, fuck the undercover mm-hmm. agents, mm-hmm. who cares? Like, mm. let's do the bad thing. And then he would have to say, no, thank you. But he's not susceptible to that. And she knows it.
0: I do think the movie and the book can't really handle the bizarre weight of Voight getting super religious and puritanical at the end. Every time that hits in both version versions and he's like you know don't covet your neighbor's wife but i had sampled the goods all that stuff (laughs) it's so strange and it comes out of nowhere and it suggests that he is like um super devout and but then Mm. also willing to engage in a plan that involves like laundering his wife's sexuality yeah
1: Well, he's no longer in love with her. He had some kind of midlife crisis that pushed him into being a traitor and marrying Claire simultaneously. (laughs) And then when when he talks about, like, why would Kitteridge do this, quote unquote, and he tells on himself, he's like, bad marriage, not enough money. The stuff with Claire isn't working out. And so he's, like, willing to kill her, doesn't care about her anymore by the end. And I think the movie, the story, wants you to feel bad for Claire, that she's been used in the same way that she's been using Ethan so she can die, and you're like, oh no, Claire, instead of like, she was also an evil bitch. Not
0: not to argue <laughs> about know? misogyny like we do every episode, but don't you think the more sexist read on this movie is that they are not letting a woman be evil, even though like every plot point seems to point to her <laughs> being evil? They really want to maintain that she was nice, and it was cool that they were a little hot for each other. When everything she does and says lends itself to her being a murderous, terrible person.
1: (laughs) She's in love. The things we do for love, right? (laughs) Great. Because she genuinely (laughs) loves Jim. I think that feels true to me. And he is not a good husband. He doesn't feel that same way. He's not willing to bring her along. Mm. And as you say, he basically tries to pimp her out.
3: Right, and, the, and in it. and in neither she version of it. the story are they like shown to get you know affectionate or you know or bonded bonded together in any way.
1: Yeah, poor Claire.
0: More business partners than than lovers, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly.
1: Yeah. What I mean, I, their marriage is so weird, <laughs> confusing.
0: The, the last thing I wanted to say about the very beginning, not to say that we're stuck at the beginning, we can go wherever we want, but I, when, when the team was dying off at the beginning, I thought to myself, okay, I haven't watched this movie in a while, I'm going to follow every single person because I only remember, let's say, four distinct deaths for five characters. Uh, there's only four distinct deaths for five characters. How is it not a conspiracy theory among fans that Hannah is still out there? She blew up in the car, you dumb. They never show her get in the car. They never. Yes, sh- they do. No, she does not. No,
1: she doesn't get in the they car. They literally show her get in the car in the passenger seat. Wow. And then the car immediately blows up. They show it twice. Wow. I'm hearing this for the first time. Um, <laughs> I mean, I do like that in the book. Ethan doesn't see Hannah get into the car. Sees Claire, and is like, "Well." And then there was a woman in the car when the car blew up, and thinks for a while maybe Hannah's still alive. Mm, mm-hmm. That's fun. That's nice. Mm-hmm. But you're just simply wrong. The movie does show Hannah getting into the car. Wow! And then the fact up. that I
0: was trying to track them all and I still missed it—really bad <laughs> stuff. Really <laughs> dire
2: stuff. You know what? I think yeah. Hannah's still out there.
0: <laughs> Thank <laughs> you, <laughs> Joe.
2: <laughs> I think she crawled out. I think there was a little door or something. She got out. And- that actress
0: is I mean, alive, I do right? I remember.
1: I think so. That would happen if it I was a so. Fast and
0: Furious. They'd have her. They'd say that she got out, and then she'd show up in Seven. Oh yeah,
3: right. Yeah. Because no, Kittredge I mean, is back, right? The, this is what I yeah. understand from the preview. Yes, yeah. Kang. Oh.
1: Um, I mean, the first time I saw Mission Impossible 1, I think it's because I was really hot on Emilio Estevez, who I who remains just a man I truly love. But like, I, I was not yet in my Tom Cruise moment. <clears throat> I was in an Emilio moment, and I was like, he's in Mission Impossible. It's time to watch Mission Impossible. And his death is so traumatizing and upsetting. Yeah. It is... I had no idea it was coming. It shocks me every single time. It's so graphic. Yeah. In a way, it doesn't need to be.
3: It's the most. It's the most gratuitous part of the image in the movie. I think
1: it's his whole face. I don't understand what <laughs> oh happens there.
2: Like even in the book, I feel like the book was kind of big, like spikes popped down from the top of the elevator. I was like, <laughs> why are there- I kept <laughs> reading that, being like, why are there spikes in the elevator shaft? And. <laughs> But I guess maybe those are some kind of springs or something like that to stop so I don't know. I think I'm I
1: think maybe I'm really some kind reading of stoppage device.
2: Stoppage device. They have some sort of knuckle. That that
0: so I'm I I agree with you Joe. Uh, they have some sort of knuckle that makes it seem as though that's there so that they can absorb the impact and possibly act as springs. Now, would you have the springs have knives on the end? <laughs> Not me.
1: <laughs> yeah, at At the last moment in the movie, like, the first set comes down, and you're like, oh, no! And then, like, another pointier (laughs) one does come down and smash Emilio's face. Awful. Uh, I do like that moment in the book where Ethan hears it, and he's standing in the street, right? The scream of agony echoed in micro-speakers as Jack's transmission went to static. Jack, Ethan whispered, Jack, he repeated, not ready to accept what his eyes and ears had just recorded. Ethan turned to Sarah with eyes so full of emotion that she froze. And I'm like, yeah, fuck yeah, that's my guy. That's Ethan Hunt. <laughs> like, this is important information that he is immediately like, this is the worst night of my life.
0: <laughs> Seems like bad operating procedure to have teams that get this close, right? You want to have a team where if somebody <laughs> drops dead on the el- in the elevator shaft or whatever, that they're sort of coldly continuing on.
1: This is an Ethan Hunt problem. This is not a team problem. Because Sarah <laughs> is like, we're, we have to abort. He said abort, we're going to go home. And Ethan's like, I will not let Jack die in vain. We oh, yeah. are getting the list. <laughs> that's an Ethan problem.
4: Mm. Mm-hmm. One
1: more Jack Harmon note before we move away from Amelia forever. Um, the hostile lasagna, don't get any on ya, Just don't chew it. And then this very funny little line that's only in the book. Or all those years in braces will have been a damn waste. I noticed that too. A very funny joke on Tom Cruise's teeth.
2: (laughs) Oh, I didn't even get that. Really
1: cute. (laughs) Thank you. I didn't either. But I mean, I think it's like a cute little... Well, uh, we all know Tom Cruise has had a lot of dental work done. And I just think it's, it's a funny line. It's a funny moment of like, yeah, your teeth needed it. Don't ruin it by chewing the explosive gum, you dumb piece of shit. Love ya. Like, it's just a cute little friend moment that I really like. Okay, moving on.
0: (laughs) An interesting byproduct of the book being in Ethan's head so much is that they sort of have to suffuse him within a political ideology, uh, which for the most part just ends up being, I think, the IMF rules and I wish people wouldn't mess with it. But it leads to this funny series of thoughts he has where he's thinking about the guy he's going to impersonate in Prague and he goes, and not only am I going to impersonate him, I'm going to enjoy it because he's mean to the IMF. And the, the passages- He thinks that there should
1: be transparency in our government. What a douche. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Um, is it, is they, they tell Ethan that he's going to have to impersonate this guy. And he says, he's going to be a pleasure. Ethan smiled. Even though this mission was all business, Senator Waltzer was just the kind of politician Ethan liked to mess with. He knew that Walzer's anti-CIA rhetoric was fodder for the voters back home, and when it came time for a Senate vote on funding, Walzer was right there towing the party line. Walzer represented the Washington double talk that had disillusioned Ethan years ago when he served in special forces and then CIA black ops teams. Ethan served his country with patriotic intention, but once he entered covert global fieldwork, he quickly learned that politicians often sanctioned secret missions for motives that were far from patriotic, that had more to do with protecting the interests of certain corporations or facilitating hidden political agendas. It's also an interesting way for the Mission Impossible universe to have its cake and eat it too. To go, he uh, Ethan works for the U.S. government, and the U.S. government does do really fucked up stuff, but that's because of the bad, dark government people mm. And he, the IMF, does real patriotic things. It's an interesting way to have him work for the most major world government or the most powerful world government, but then also give him agency within that to choose to do things that are truly good.
3: Yeah, there we have underdogs on the payroll. Don't worry.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. And I'm assuming to explain, you know, in the TV show we already have uh, the phrase, your mission, should you choose to accept it? And so of course they're going to bring that into the film series, but there's a, a funny explanation of it in here where they <laughs> it doesn't totally make sense where they go, you know, Jim Phelps had made the most bestest ever team of all time forever. And uh, Kittredge would ask them to do stuff, but he could still say no, just to justify that line, if you choose to yeah. accept it. Who else is Kittredge going to?
3: <laughs> That's what Other I, that IMF was one of the teams. impressions I got from the book was that it's a lonely little IMF, isn't it? It's Jim Phelps, or then, and then it's the road. If you, if you don't like Jim Phelps's way, then you don't have a lot of options. In yes, IMF.
0: yes, exactly. Yeah.
1: I mean, early on when they have that fight, and Ethan's like, My team's exhausted. We shouldn't do it. And Jim's like, What are you going to do? Say no? Hmm? Yeah. Hmm? <laughs> he really like pushes him into being like, I guess we'll do the mission, even though I don't feel good about it. Yeah was a
0: great touch because it's it's jim being like i I have to do the crimes i have planned please do the mission
1: (laughs) if you don't do the mission my crimes don't work and the hunt fails and they catch me
0: Uh, just looking through my notes here
1: poor hannah gets blown up sarah gets stabbed to death
0: they're dead they're all dead does anyone have or the actual did. info about Aldrich Ames? I don't know about this.
1: I Googled him twice reading this book and was like, oh, yeah, he's a guy who literally did trader stuff for money. Got it. And then I didn't read any further.
2: Great. It was, so it was just a re- book brought him up so many times like that that yeah. seemed to be I don't know if that was like something when they were making the movie, they were like, oh, this is a very like big news story. And this is can be kind of the backstory of. Where the team is at in terms of the politics of all this and internal CIA politics, but I was it really was like, well, all, you know, obviously this had happened because of the Aldrich Ames scandal, <laughs> and I was like, this it really is, is like their
0: nine a- eleven. It's yeah. the, the it, it's the thing in this book that did happen, and it was a worst case scenario, and now everything that the organization is doing is either in response or in fear of a repeat. Mm. Mm.
1: Like, that's why Kitteridge is in charge now, and that's why Kitteridge is so sensitive to the the leak of the knock list, that he's like, we can't even tell anybody that Ethan stole it, because I'll get in trouble! I did it again! <laughs> yeah. They do keep bringing it up. Do we have to talk about Ethan's message board stuff, or can we all agree that he's sending messages on a message board and not emails, and so it's fine? <laughs> I- <laughs> I have some
0: confusion about uh, what the movie intends us to believe. So I'm not going to complain about how it's different than the actual internet or anything like that. But w- why is he sending off a million things? What what are we meant to believe is happening? He's doing some scattershot approach to to contacting Max.
3: Yeah, I think this is the moment why people think that leads to the confusion that people think that this is a confusing uh, plot because it's really not. He's posing as the mole to track down the buyer and then, you know, follow that chain. But you're right. It's these, he, he doesn't know the mode of communication, but he suspects that it's a Usenet group. So he just starts posting on all of them. Kitterich
1: says we decoded a message from the internet and Ethan's like, okay, use net groups. That's how people communicate on the internet. And so he figures out the Job 314 Bible thing and just sends out a wide net onto all of the Bible groups hoping to catch a fish. And he does.
0: Hmm. Do we think, Job-wise, that Phelps originated the Job thing due to being devoutly religious or that that was a, a, a code established by Max?
1: I don't think he's devoutly religious. Great, great. So. That's fine.
0: That's fine. I mean, he says that weird thing about coveting neighbor's wives at the end. Uh,
1: I think if you were going to be kind of snotty to somebody who is coveting your wife, you might quote scripture, even if you weren't religious. Everybody knows that one.
3: Yeah, I took that as him doing an arch little wheelie on all of the Job <laughs> talk uh, thus far. Mm.
0: Interesting. Okay. The, the thing with the Bible He should
2: have pulled out like a big cross and they're like, Look, I'm super Christian now.
0: <laughs> he's he's got a pin at the end. Oh, I know I know that's uh you and a Jim Phelps mask, Ethan, because Jim, of course, is now wearing his cross pin everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> the Bible twist. Uh I I I remembered a better twist or a more clear twist than there actually is in the movie i'm not sure i understand why ethan makes the logical jump to jim brought that bible from the drake hotel i thought in my memory because that happens around the time of the of the altercation with krieger where krieger has the real tape i thought that they were in like Krieger's living space or a safe house of Krieger's and that the Bible was from the Drake Hotel which helped him put together all the twists Jim's evil and Jim's with Krieger how does he actually do it why does
1: why does the Bible tip him off because Phelps is not religious there's no reason for him to carry a Bible around except that he's using it to do codes with Max
0: but how why why is he even assuming that a Bible in this House that Phelps is temporarily using for this mission belongs to because it
1: was stamped with the Drake Hotel, which is where Phelps told them he had been stationed doing recruiting in Chicago before coming to Prague.
0: If I were in the IMF, and (laughs) you're not a spy, if I were and this (laughs) happened to me, I would pick up that Bible and I'd go, Crazy coincidence, Jim, the people who used to live in this safe house also once went to the drake hotel i know this isn't yours because you're not religious
1: <laughs> well lucky for the world that you are not ethan hunt mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. in the film how does he put together the krieger thing just explain the plot of the movie to me i don't get it the,
1: <laughs> the krieger thing is because he puts together that claire is in on it and claire brought in krieger And Krieger's knife is the same knife that he used to kill Sarah. Is
0: that clear in the movie? It's very, very highlighted in the book.
1: They show the knife when Sarah gets stabbed. It's one of those, you know, military whatever with a black plastic blade. Then when Krieger goes to kill the guard at the CIA headquarters, Ethan looks at that knife and is like, huh. Then when it falls into the CIA locked room, he's like, hmm, same fucking knife. Then later, he's like, Krieger's suspicious as shit bad guy got it he was the person who killed sarah indeed the link is there he needed another man to do sarah and Glitzin. it was krieger
0: fantastic now this is supposed to be a four quadrant film
1: so much joe
0: when you went (laughs) to this movie at 13 years old
2: uh what did you understand the twist to be i don't know i was so confused at this point i had no idea what was going on i just (laughs) i was like is the are other people able to follow this Um, But I think it's all in that montage where Ethan Hunt is like putting it together and it's cutting between like the knives like that's Ethan like that's I think the moment I think as the audience you are also supposed to put it together maybe Ethan is ahead of us a little bit um, and has been thinking about this the whole time as the book kind of suggests he is but I think in that moment that's where you as the audience are supposed to realize like oh Krieger is part of Ethan now knows that Krieger is connected to uh, Phelps and all this.
0: I guess the thing that confuses me here is is we get Krieger and Luther introduced in in the same scene and it's made explicit in some way that they are from different sources.
1: Yes. Well, I cl- think so. Yes. Ethan cl- types in show me the disavowed list. Right? Yes. And then I think he, they're looking through the list. And he goes, oh, Luther Stickle, that guy's great. And Claire goes, oh, Krieger, I've worked with him before.
0: Oh. And that's how they call Yeah, She
3: takes responsibility for Krieger, which is another way that it gets sewn up.
1: Yeah.
0: I promise that sometimes our podcast is about metatextual analysis and not people just (laughs) going, Andrew, this is what happened in the movie you watched.
1: (laughs) No, I understand that Mission Impossible 1 is a slightly confusing story if you turn away from the screen for any specific 30 seconds. You know, it requires you to pay close attention and if you do pay close attention, the information's there and it makes sense and it is followable. But if you blink and you miss something, you might miss something and I allow that that happens to you. Andrew. I
0: I did not blink. I was looking very closely. I think I think <laughs> I think the Bible thing is a little uh it, it it falls apart a little bit for me as we tease it open. It it makes more sense for me to have that Bible be in someone's living space than it does to say, oh, this space we did a spy thing and had the Bible, therefore it's yours, therefore, therefore, therefore.
1: For me. Yeah, but we're never in any of these people's homes and there's no reason why we ever Fantastic. would be. And I guarantee I none of them have a home. They're traveling too much. They're too busy.
0: Uh, let's see. I like the part where Ethan's reflecting on how Claire died when he still thinks she's dead and... He goes, uh, I always brought her back, but this time she died. It was written in a way that made me laugh. Uh Uh-oh, this time (laughs) she died. Uh, There's also a great description of how people get disavowed on 114. Uh, It says, for agents to be disavowed from IMF, they had to have been caught or captured during a mission, screwed up in some significant, unforgivable way, or sold their services to more than one buyer at a time. When Phelps assembled and expanded his IMF teams, he never looked for gung ho flag wavers. He wanted realists, men and women who understood the complexities of modern governments and were comfortable with the invisible socio political webs that bind industrialized nations. Countries had their public policies and their shadow policies, and it was in the shadow world that IMF teams operated. Of course, even in the shadow world, perhaps especially in the shadow world. IMF agents operated under a code of ethics. Never accept funds outside the system. Never kill a non-sanctioned individual unless that individual tries to kill you first. Always reveal to headquarters any conflict of interest a mission might present. Uh, it was a short, clear list. its It becomes this headache to think about hiring for this organization. Okay, I need people <laughs> who believe in their country, but they can't be... They can't be the, the, the guys, you know, who, who walk around in army gear in everyday life. Like, I can't have the the political nutzos, But then, so I need realists. But then I also need realists who are great at communication and mm. really self-analyzing all the time. Uh, <laughs> I, I understand why they mess it up sometimes when they put it this way. I mean,
1: it kind of rocks that the book more than once is like the reason Ethan is in, is in the IMF is because he didn't like working for the military. <laughs> He found it really unsavory, the like political concessions you have to make under somebody else's thumb. That he was like, I'm not interested in doing that work yes. and ended up doing IMF work.
3: <laughs> where he and gave- working dra- directly under a double
1: agent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
3: I like was it in the book or was it in some research that I did where they finally spelled out what a, what the knock what a knock is? Oh. an unofficial
1: cover how, how
3: they're sanctioned agents who your government says whoopsie when they're um, c- captured and tries to trade for them and then the knock agents are essentially the ones who are at th- subject to disavowal I was I we all learned something today yeah.
4: mm-hmm.
0: when they explain in the book why Kittredge is somewhat uh, redeemable or why he's a he's a good agent to have around uh it, Ethan does use that phrase where he goes. I understand why he was, you know, fighting back so dirty because if the knocklist gets out, uh, they'll have to change Langley into just a giant morgue where bodies pile up. <laughs>
3: <coughs> That's grim.
2: I think a big pl- My big plot hole for this movie is the existence of the knocklist. Like, why would they have a list of? They're like we've written down all of our secrets on one list. <laughs> but we don't we got to have this list, but we're going to divide the list in half and keep the, it in two different places and It's like why does that exist? That seems like a bad idea
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm with you there
2: um, I guess it,
1: and what is William Donlow doing all day? <laughs> yeah I would love to I would love to see the emails that he gets like. Because co- they make it very explicit. His computer is not connected to a modem. Like it, it's not connected to other computers. It just has files on it that he does work in. He's doing
2: data entry. How
1: can you fill eight hours a day, five <laughs> days a week with that? And he loves it. He loves it. I think I love that guy. That performance is so delightful, <laughs> and I can't wait to see him again.
0: But regarding the knock list, I think you basically can't win when writing something. With you know secret agents and stuff because you're right that having a master list is a bad idea and it's sort of a fun concept that it's Mm -hmm. a master list that only works if two parts are put together sort of a nuclear key type of situation but if you do the opposite thing it becomes the face off thing, or a, or a million movies about undercover cops, where the guy who put you undercover dies, and then you run around being like, I am in the IMF! I swear! I'm one of the knock guys! And they're like, we don't have any proof of that! Um, <laughs> I mean, would,
1: do we prefer the Mission Impossible 3 rabbit's foot thing, where they're like, it's literally a MacGuffin, we won't explain yeah. why it matters no. at all. <laughs> right, exactly! I'd rather have something that I'm like, well, I don't get why it exists, but I understand the stakes of the knock list, mm. and it sounds cool when they say it.
2: The knock list also is like, I do like it cause it is like both a thing where it's like, oh, a bunch of people will die. But also like so they mention in the book that like, they all know these are all like everybody's friends. Like these are like mm-hmm. people they've worked yeah, with. So, so there's like both a, a worldwide thing and like a personal connection to it, which just works as a big, raises the stakes. Yeah.
4: yeah.
0: Yeah, like it's like when you, you know, it's like when you go through a breakup and you realize that all your friends were connected to your relationship. You're like, I just put all my eggs in that one basket. I'm sad because I got dumped <laughs> and I don't
2: have friends. This is why I don't let my relationships see my full list of friends that I keep. I keep that
1: list in two different <laughs> you gotta places. You got to keep some to yourself. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, For Joe, sure. you famously, whenever your partner has uh, offered to introduce you to one of their friends, you've, you've solidly said no, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You just don't. Yeah. You don't want to mix those worlds. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't mix business
2: with pleasure. Like, I'm the... business. <laughs> I guess, uh my marriage with my friends. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Let's talk about Don Lo. Rolf Saxon playing Don Lo. Uh, apparently, also back for one of these new movies. Interesting.
3: Oh. Oh wow.
4: Yeah.
0: There was an Instagram post that suggested such a thing.
4: Mm-hmm. On
0: page one thirty three, we get a a little explanation of this guy. It says. Donlow, however, well, so the however is coming because we've been told how working in this room with extremely high security at Langley has burned out a bunch of different employees who went, sure, I'll do that for massive amounts of pay. And then they just go crazy because they're in a white room all day where they can't ever leave. Uh, and it says Donlow, however, was quickly becoming a legend within the ranks of CIA data operators. He thrived in room 111. He loved the isolation, the control, the predictability. The job made him feel important. Uh, but, 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 yeah. But he basically is a guy who's just, like, doesn't have a lot going on in his personal life, aggressively antisocial, and so being locked in a room in exchange for wealth is perfect for him, which I love.
1: And he's not gonna talk to the pretty girl who sits next to him at the lunch table. Uh, I do love this little passage where um, Donlo allowed himself to walk her allowed himself to watch her walk out of the room, and even allowed himself a quick, vivid fantasy involving the stunning girl. Then she was gone, and he returned to his newspaper. Given the way the rest of Donno's day was going to unfold, he might later, in a fit of religious guilt, believe what happened that day was divine retribution for his brief but wicked fantasy involving the woman he saw in the lunchroom. Which is like a vivid piece of character drawing, where he's just like, oh, man, I can't do anything, right? Can't have any nice thing.
2: (laughs) I can't even think a (laughs) thought.
3: It does not to talk about my only other episode. This puts me very much in the mind of Stephen Tobolowski in uh, uh, in sneakers. I was thinking the same thing. Another another uh, another uh, shut in who's uh, preyed upon.
0: Yeah the 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 Donlow thing. It starts almost in cell E where he's looking at Claire, going, Oh, women like that never talked to me. I couldn't even. Sh- I mean, I don't even exist to her." But then it just instead of being. Angry or vitriolic, it just turns to sad at the end. He's he's like, I was wrong to think those things about that pretty lady. I deserve to go to Alaska.
1: (laughs) I have to throw up the worst I've ever thrown up in my whole life for 25 straight minutes. It's horrible. And then get fired.
0: (laughs) Given that both of these guys, Kittredge and Saxon, are going to be in some of these movies, they might not even be in the same one. It's unclear. I'm worried that there's going to be some sort of Marvel-esque quip Mm. in these new films, you know, Saxon getting one over on Kittredge and going, that's what you get for sending me to Alaska. I'm really worried about it. It's possible. I
1: don't think you should be. Great. I I mean, it's possible, sure. I... Because when you listen to Tom and Chris Macquarie talk about their priorities in these movies, they're always like, it's character first, it's about emotional beats, it's story, and then it's action. They're not, they're not aiming for cheap laughs, you know? hmm Their cheap laughs are Tom doing pratfalls. Like, that's where they're like, yeah, we can have some comedy here. It's Tom's going to flop over a car. Yeah. It's not little quips like that, you know? They don't do that. Okay, good. Okay. I think they'll go to him for some sort of data processing question. It'll it's a shame
3: fun. he's been removed from his special room. It'd be nice for them to have to fly through the room again. This, that's
1: a yeah, great idea. Cool.
2: They should have to go. Oh, that would, I think people would like that. And he can't
3: r- remove his feet from the floor.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of the special <laughs> room, how do we feel about the way that action sequence, sort of the big showstopper of the movie, is written in the book? Wise. I seem Does to have it zero notes Is it on
3: it. There are a lot. There are, There were a few descriptions of gymnastics that I found a little a little uh, squeaky. <laughs> <laughs> like the actual maneuvers that he makes once he's suspended on the mm-hmm. wire, and he can't reach the desk and things like that that are purely, you know, that are real Tom Cruise stuff. Um,
2: <laughs> I thought it was a uh, yeah. I thought that the, the, the gymnastic stuff was. Uh, funny, but I feel like in that scene I really noticed like the writer like really describing like the details of all the devices and all like I feel like there's like a lot of like latex his latex glove grabbed the thing and I was there was like lots of that where I was like okay the glove the the substance the thing is made out of is described we're really getting into the <laughs> visual uh, visceral details of this thing. I feel like sometimes
0: the details that you're talking about can distract from the book uh, especially when it comes to spy tech which when you see a thing you've never ever seen before in a spy movie some little gizmo and you immediately see what it does that just works in your brain but in this sequence when they set up the laser beam reflector that reflects the laser back and forth between two mirrors up in the vent You see it in the movie and you go, I don't totally get how that works, but I see what it is doing. And in the book, you get basically what I just said written down. And it's like, now I'm really trying to figure out what the heck that is or would look like.
3: I found that also earlier on in the book when uh, he looks up when he's looking up disavowed agents and he uses a box. They describe a box the size of a child of a box of child's shoes a child's shoe box that he plugs into the wall that allows him to uh even though he's just been burnt uh uh look up disavowed agents and you're like oh that's the disavowed agents looking up box <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah coupled with when he finally is like putting the disc into the computer luther has to be like now go to file now go to download now go to download to disc and you're like especially you know 30 years later, you're like, well, he would know how to do that, right? <laughs> you don't have to explain how to download a file into a floppy disk, do you? <laughs> do you? I think people were just... This is what we hired Luther for. I
0: I think people were just scared of computers back then. If we go even further back, one of those Mission Impossible episodes we watched had that thing where they were trying to delete the evil formula, and they kept saying all episode, I can't instruct you how to do it. It's too complicated. And then when they finally did it, it was like, file, open, file, delete, empty, trash. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) it's true i mean they hire luther as like the number one hacker in the world and he's immediately like well i can't hack into that so i'll stay in the car
3: (laughs) i'll be out here
1: yeah i mean he provides a lot of tech he's the best we love him but uh i do also like there's a lot of talk about he's like i I love being in the car i prefer being in the car i hate being in the field he's so stressed out the entire time he's on the train Um, and i like the way that it both establishes Luther as a guy who's like not interested in getting into trouble for the rest of the movies. He's gonna stay in the car as much as possible. Love that for him. And it kind of explains like tech op guys, guys are not expected to be out in dangerous situations in the field. And maybe kind of explains why Jack freezes up on top of that elevator and doesn't do anything to try and save his own yeah, life. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. Too like close in to hindsight, the I was like, mm, thank you, book, for trying. <laughs>
3: They do dress him up as a firefighter, though, for the CIA, Mm -hmm. just in case. Looks
1: great. (laughs) Hot look on everybody. Just in case
3: he
0: he gets caught and he can go, yes, I was one of the firefighters. I took a break to get in this van full of computers.
3: (laughs) I'm the truck. I'm the truck firefighter.
0: (laughs) I stay in the truck. If the fire gets out here into the truck, I'm on it.
3: If there's a fire in the fire truck, that is the worst possible thing. <laughs> With that, we must guard against that at all costs.
0: The worst thing that can happen to a firefighter is to be used as an example of irony by local school teachers for decades to come.
1: <laughs> I wish we knew what Luther had done to be disavowed because he's such a good person. And that's what... Ethan really values about him is that he's deeply trustworthy. He doesn't want anyone to get hurt. He doesn't want to do a bad thing actually. I would love to have a little information about what got him disavowed. The Or if it was just tweaking computers out of his own curiosity to the point where they were like, "Fucking stop it."
0: <laughs> you know. The description uh of that I read earlier of how people get disavowed and how there's so much variance in, you know, you can actually be a cold-blooded killer, or you can just be someone that Tried to make a few extra bucks on the side, uh, opens up the possibility that Krieger and Luther are completely different types of disavowed, which is crucial for how the film ends. Uh, and also has th- this funny detail where whatever he did, Kittredge got so mad at him that he went, Should we maybe kill Luther? You know, he has too much info, he's too powerful, and then they became convinced that Luther has some sort of dead man's switch, so that if they ever kill him, information that would destroy the IMF would be released. They don't even have confirmation. He never threatens that. They just go, this guy's so good, I bet he has a dead man's...
3: And then at the end when they reinstate him, the inverse is true. They say that the they don't even like him that much. They just rather have him on a W nine while he's hacking. <laughs> it's just as you might as well be inside the barn pissing out.
0: Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. All right. He's the best guy. Just looking to see if there's anything else I wanted to hit here. <laughs>
2: No, and that scene where they uh he meets uh he meets luther and uh Jean Renault, there's a lot of description of like mineral water bottles i thought like <laughs> yes. that i didn't think was in i was like i don't think this is in the movie where they kept like people kept opening mineral water bottles and throwing them down and like i was like what is, was the writer just like drinking
3: mineral water as he was like,
1: <laughs> that's what you get on a high-end train we have to make <laughs> that's that true. How can Just, I make also, I feel like the top
3: of really one nice. of the bottles was torn off. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I of I so. yeah. Just,
1: He's adding color and flavor to every scene.
0: Me, me writing the Mission Impossible novelization going, uh, and of course, Luther was very gentle with his rock star energy drink, which made Ethan <laughs> like him, whereas okay. Krieger was very rough with his rock star. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, There might be people worth liking in the world, but Krieger hadn't met any of them. Since he was French, he was inclined to believe that people he met outside of his country were probably not going to be up to his standards. What a funny way to introduce a guy. Like, he's French. He sucks. He's a good pilot, but not a nice person. (laughs) French.
0: French. There's, uh, There's a lot of weird Claire stuff at the end of the book, so... <clears throat> when Ethan Claire puts- also
1: takes up smoking midway through the book. Oh yeah, there's that line where she's like, uh, "Jim made me quit, but I couldn't make him quit." Pretty rude, huh? <laughs> yeah, it is.
0: <laughs> rude. That actually is an extreme red flag. <laughs> you better quit <laughs> that thing. I actively do. <laughs> yeah, we both smoke, but I want you to quit. <laughs> I'm gonna keep doing I it. I think it's even a red flag. I'm keep doing it though. If you if you don't do something and you demand your partner not do it. But to be like, you don't do it, and I do.
1: (laughs) They have a bad marriage.
0: Here's the part where Ethan runs down all the reasons. This is sort of post-mortem. He's running down all the reasons he was able to put the twist together. And he says, From the very second Jim Phelps had called the abort in Prague, Ethan had sensed something was wrong, beyond just a failed mission. Jim had been too insistent Too clear in the midst of an unclear situation. Then there was Krieger's knife that fell into the computer room at Langley. A knife similar to the one used to kill Sarah. There was the Bible from the Drake Hotel. And Phelps suddenly turning up in London. With answers to all of Ethan's questions about the Prague mission. Answers to questions Ethan hadn't even had the time to ask. Jim Phelps was thorough. Ethan would give him that. And Claire's kiss back in the London safe house flat. There was heat in it. Also a sadness and a finality that he hadn't conjured up on his own. Claire's heart revealed its betrayal long before her mind had. This book makes Ethan a little Ooh. bit into sort of uh one of my least favorite tropes, the, the 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 daredevil magical blind man, even though he has sight. There's moments where he's like, I kissed someone and I tasted betrayal. Or when he initially <laughs> is is brought in by Max. He's going, uh, from the sound of everyone vo- everyone's voices, we're in a stucco room with ceilings 30 feet high. I hold my fingers up for a moment to feel the air and know where the windows are. Too much for me. fuck <laughs> is trying
1: it's to establish spycraft. him as, in, yes, great spycraft, a yeah. consummate professional spy. He's always on the lookout. It's maybe a little much.
3: <laughs> I, in, in that same sequence, he's sad that the sack they put over his head is a used sack, He's, he's, oh. he's, he's previously been used on smokers, which he disapproves of. <laughs>
1: it's, hard, it's a little hard for me to imagine Tom Cruise's Ethan Hunt being like, yeah, I smoked for a while. Yeah, just seems super unrealistic.
0: He basically has to take it up uh, in order to receive these missions in the future. That's I'm the stinger. drop that That's... pretty quickly. The culmination of the Claire thing is mm-hmm. that... Ethan, uh, it's when she's dying. Ethan is thinking over their relationship. And it says, uh, he looked in the dim light for her wound, then found it in her chest. He couldn't help but think about the drug they had used in Kiev to simulate death when they, when they had fooled the corrupt Russian politician. And afterward, he had cradled her face in his hand and watched the consciousness return to her eyes. Uh, where is the part? Here we go. When Phelps first introduced Ethan to Claire, Ethan had taken one look at her, and knew things between them would end badly. How could it be any other way? Jim was his boss and friend. Claire was Jim's wife. Ethan had fallen in love with her almost instantly, and he knew she felt something clear and strong for him. It could only end badly, and it had. Should he have just walked away from Claire and the IMF two years ago, he asked himself? Maybe. Probably. But what would have been the point? She would have been there, in his thoughts and feelings, haunting him. Being with him for two years, trying to mask his feelings, had hurt. But leaving would have hurt worse. Now, it's bad criticism, and it's bad analysis to go, I don't find this to be true to my personal emotions, but I don't find this to be true to my personal emotions. If (laughs) if you remove yourself from a situation that seems emotionally fraught, I, I don't think it's true that you would spend... The rest of your life thinking about a woman that you knew for two weeks. I think you know life would rush in.
1: You are. This is the. the you're not Ethan Hunt, though. Is the thing. Like he spends the next twenty years thinking about his friends who died in 1996. Mm-hmm. He like can't let it go. He holds on to everything. There's no way he would ever be like oh, I loved her. I loved her. Ah, I'll just get over it. <laughs> he doesn't do that. That's not who he is. He's not that guy.
3: And that's why he has such a hard time as a spy. That's why he has yeah. twelve movies worth of misadventures because he leads with his heart. And It's tough yeah. to be in the IMF when you do that.
4: Mm.
2: It also exactly. sounds a little bit like him trying to justify not leaving her. He's like, "There's no point in leaving. I would just think about it all the time.
4: So I should just stay. <laughs> I'd rather be looking
2: I should at just her stay face and, and her stay with shit. The, la- the lady.
0: It makes sense for me to uh, keep yeah. setting up missions where I have to cradle her back to life. I think that's the best course of action. <gasps>
1: What if What if on this mission we pretended to date? Just like, just what if? Just to play. I definitely don't like their little last bit of dialogue, which is not in the movie after she's been shot, where here in the book she's like, you know, out of it. It's all right, Ethan. She said, you'll bring me back, won't you? He touched her hair. I always have, Claire. Like, no, fuck that. Get that out of here. That is <laughs> not in the movie. Don't like it. Cheesy.
0: I wish he'd turned on her a little bit more in his inner self.
3: He loves her too much. Not even in that moment, but I also thought that at the very beginning when she shows up at the, not at the very beginning, but after the blown mission when he spends all this time saying like, I'm the only one left alive. They must think I did it. And then it turns out there's one other person left alive and not for a moment does he say like, hey, how'd you end up alive? (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Especially since Kittredge's logic is he who is left alive is the mole and Ethan's going, I'm not the mole. And then Claire shows up alive and he goes... We're not the mole. It's like, think, think <laughs> for this. a second.
2: Claire, I'm so glad you're here. Somebody's trying to kill us. <laughs> I don't know who it is. It has to be someone connected to the mission. Mm. <laughs> and then Phelps shows up and he goes, this is
0: one too many.
1: <laughs> no, I'm sure. I mean, it does. I'm never totally clear on the moment he figures out that Claire is definitely in on it with Jim. Mm.
2: Yes, that feels Mm. like that's like off screen or like that's, I mean, off page, I guess.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. I don't know when that was either.
1: I think
0: in my mind, in the book, there's two explanations. So in the book, he's a superhero who kisses the truth out of her. In the movie, I think he doesn't know and he puts the Phelps mask on. And stands in the back of the train until she comes back and goes, evil, 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 evil. And then he goes, oh, okay, Mm -hmm. of course.
4: Yeah.
1: Yeah, that feels right to me in the film as well. Uh, There's in the book when he meets up with Phelps at that pub and Phelps is like, I'm injured, cough, cough. At the end of that sequence, here in the book, page 175, as they part ways, he says, and as he walked, reflecting on the conversation he would just had with Jim Phelps, he knew that his relationship with Jim and Claire was gone forever, which makes me think that at that point, he's like, I guess she must have blown up Hannah. I guess she is in Anna on it. Mm. So the movie, he does that logical rewrite where he's like, no, 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 he could have blown up the car. He didn't need Claire to do that.
4: Mm,
0: mm-hmm. And and right. Phelps, mm. I, I think I, I wrote down at one point that Phelps has the sloppiest story when he shows back up. Because he, in the book, he's going, and then this happened, and it was so crazy. And Ethan goes, who blew up the car? And Phelps goes, look, I don't know who Kittredge had as a sidekick, but they were there, okay? <laughs> this really sloppy stuff.
1: I mean, showing up again at all is pretty sloppy, but he's in like panic mode because Ethan is getting too close to digging him out.
0: If it was me, right? if it was me and Ethan Hunt's shoes, the movie would have ended a lot sooner because when Phelps showed up and he was explaining everything to me, I'd go, show me the tummy wound. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Yeah, that is a little. That is weaker spycraft, isn't it? Because then he's he's so shocked again when he shows up on the train. He's like, he hasn't been gut shot at all. Totally. And if he if he
0: had actually stabbed himself to make the story more believable, if he had a real wound, then I would lose the movie and I'd be like, you really committed. You earned this. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, small... Why did,
3: he, shows, he shows up at the end again because Ethan's been doing his job, right? He was, he's trying to complete the job that he... This is Phelps. Phelps shows up again because Ethan has just, been, has just cleaned up his mess, essentially, and is now going to do the trade that Phelps wanted to do, right? Yes,
0: and the book yes. has that incredible line where Ethan goes, uh, I got the $6 million that you were going to get, and Phelps goes, $6 million was for Europe. 10 million for the world, Knockless? That's terrible. <laughs> you made a <laughs> bad, bad business, deal. Baby. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, somebody's about to get crushed under an exploding helicopter in the channel. So who is really going to lose here, huh?
3: But yeah, that to me, in neither the movie nor the book, do they really get Jim Phelps to the point where I believe he wants to kill every undercover agent in, in the world.
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: I do feel like there was a moment in the movie. Where Phelps is on the helicopter already. And if Krieger was just like, we did it, backing away, they would win. And because Krieger hates Ethan Hunt so much, (laughs) he decides I'm going to try and kill him. Yes. (laughs) I absolutely have to try and kill this man. And then it all goes sideways for them.
0: Before we... And
1: Ethan blows them up with Jack's beautiful exploding gum, which I think the movies should use again. A
0: question about the gum. Mm -hmm. Is it a little dishonest filmmaking-wise to, to present a single unwrapped stick of gum and then reveal later in the movie that he had multiples. Mm.
1: Of course he has multiples. Great. It's a pack of gum. It's a pack of chewing gum. He holds uh, up a
0: naked piece and it's never presented in, in movie, wrapping or anything when he pulls it It is out.
1: presented in wrapping multiple times. What? But I do believe... The first time Jack pulls it out, he takes a piece out of a little case and unwraps it and says, here it is.
2: Oh, I think I remember that too.
1: Great. Mm. And then the rest of the movie, Ethan is pulling out one piece wrapped in tin foil and opening it up and folding it when he wants it, smushing it, throwing it at stuff.
0: Fantastic. Well, I'll cut that so I sound smart. I love <laughs> the gum. It's one of my favorite things I about the, the movie. Gum.
1: <laughs> I love the visco glasses, which I think they should bring back as well. I love Ethan's sleight of hand magic tricks, which Mm -hmm. we should use. I love his slightly longer leather jacket V-neck sweater combinations, which (laughs) he's rocking in the movie. It's fun that Ethan Hunt's fashion sense has changed over the years. He's a much more short jacket guy now. That's fun.
0: (laughs) Hannah, you've basically jumped into the, the next little segment I wanted to do, which is before we wrap up either from this movie or otherwise what 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 do we want to see carried forth into into dead reckoning what you know what should be brought back
3: i would like to see more sneaking and snooping i think you know these these movies sell themselves on you know explosions and stunts and i think that uh, you know gadgets more a more human scale kind of thing i think would be a fun You know, if he's really blown, the if if the entire world has seen the face of Ethan Hunt and he has nowhere to hide, it would be nice if he had to, uh, you know, make some make some solutions with, uh, you know, coat hangers and uh, and actual chewing gum. Do a little.
1: Have to go to a party. (laughs) You
3: know. Joe, any thoughts?
2: Um, I love the idea of them going back to that CIA room that Matt said. I think that is actually that is like a really great idea. I hope Tom and Chris are. At least consider, at least consider that. I think, um, I also, I mean, I just love like Ethan Hunt pulling off a mat, like pulling off a face. And I feel like, um, I'm trying to remember if in the last one, I felt like there's only Benji, uh, masks in the last one. Right. Mm -hmm. So if we can get like a little bit more into that, the better I say. Double up those masks, triple up those masks, mask under a mask.
0: (laughs) The, uh,
1: I want to get back to Mission Impossible 2, where there's like nine masks in that movie. Oh, yes. I want to up that mask. Again. I'm not a, f- a fan of
0: mask. <clears throat> mask saturation, but I do think that the Mission Impossible 2 thing with the duct tape guy is the coolest thing anyone's ever thought of. A, a, a man whose mouth is duct tape close under a mask. And I would love to see other, I don't even know what it would be, but other mask stuff that has some additional twist or intrigue on top of it.
1: Mm -hmm. the mission impossible 2 mask reveal is the best mask reveal in the entire definitely i think hands down super exciting um it is very exciting at the end of rogue nation ghost pro one of the two where like you haven't had a mask the whole movie Rogue, and then yeah like the prime minister was like nope i was tom cruise the whole time (laughs) that rocks to have like a surprise (laughs) mask when you thought we weren't doing masks all movie I like it when they subvert the mask and and trick me with that. I like to be tricked. Here's what I want
0: back for Mission Impossible 7. Sounds like a joke isn't. On my biking playlist, I have Take a Look Around by Limp Bizkit. I listen to that song four times a week at least, and I like it. Let's bring back not just the theme songs made by pop stars, but let's get Durst back in the mix.
1: (laughs) That would be awesome. I do want the exploding <laughs> gum back, and I would love for someone to ask Ethan Hunt if he's okay, like emotionally. I'd like someone to sit down and. I want to bring back the, like, let's have a drink at a pub at the end of the movie and say, how are we doing? I'd like to have that. Well,
0: that's definitely not coming back in part one. You know, part one's going off on some crazy cliffhanger.
1: I don't know. We'll see. I hope they have a nice drink at a pub, and then they have to go do something <laughs> else. I want them. Like, all I want out of a Mission Impossible movie is, like, friendship like these are friendship movies to me so deeply that whenever they have scenes we're just like we like each other we're making new friends we're winning people over into our friendship family I'm like hooray
0: do you think like I don't think I that, want
1: everybody to be a good friend
0: Hannah I don't think that they would ever repeat killing off the entire team that'd be horrible but do you it think would. that now that the team has been around we've had an established team for several mm-hmm. movies that someone will die
1: I think there's a risk of that and it really scares me yeah I don't know what I would do.
3: Well, Jeremy Renner Renner is sort of a vestigial organ now. It's, he was going to take over for Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is not to be taken over for, taken over for <laughs> as he's established in Top Gun, that he's going to ride these things out. I think, I think Renner's in danger.
1: Is Redder I don't think he's back? in it. Do we know that at all? <laughs> no, so, is he not in it? I mean, I would love a scene of him like back at IMF headquarters, like on a laptop, like I just work in the office now. <laughs>
0: and of course I was diagnosed with Huntingtons. Him. That's how they write him out. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, wow. I mean, I love it when they're when characters if Jonathan Reese Meyer showed up in Mission Impossible 8, I'd be oh like, hell yeah, this oh is fun. God. You know, I love all of the, the team members who are just out there alive is
0: paula Patton available? alive why did she leave yes. she's great
1: she's great i would love to have her back i'm excited for Haley atwell to be a friend i hope that greg tarzan davis and shay wiggum become friends i hope that they join the friend family <laughs> if they see the error of their kidderage ways or whatever the fuck their roles are i don't know yet can't wait to find out
0: hannah blackman
1: i hope everybody hugs i hope somebody hugs Benji. He should be hugged all the time.
0: Benji is my bet for the dead one. Hannah Blackman. No! You, that would be so awful. You and your brother or brother-in-law, unclear, uh, run a farm and oh, yeah. you are mm. unfortunately arrested for the manufacture and distribution of the famous drug, Cat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, while being held in we're prison, not doing that. you discovered that the only book in the prison library is Mission Impossible by Peter Barcaccini. Knowing what you know as this version of yourself, mm-hmm. do you think jailed version of you would enjoy the book?
1: I think if I, Margaret Ethan Hunt, read this book, um, I would be very proud of my son. <laughs> <laughs> I would enjoy his adventures and it'd be a nice a peek into what he's been doing because he doesn't tell me about it at all. Um, I also love that Ethan is named after his mom. That's really cute. That was interesting.
2: Yeah, that was good, too.
1: That's nice. No, I've already read this book twice. I'll probably read it again (laughs) in my life. I'm a big fan. (laughs) I, um, you know, I think the action is written kind of so-so, but I don't care because I'm here for character. I have no idea how this book would work if I had never seen the movie. Like, would I care about Ethan Hunt as much? Would the twists work? I can't divorce it from my experience of loving the movie so it doesn't really matter I really have a good time there's something interesting on almost every page a little detail a little character nugget a little something that I'm like oh make it a note make it a note make it a note almost every single page which for me is satisfying Mm. and exciting and rich and Ethan Hunt's just a little gymnast from Wisconsin and he wants to quit and go on vacation and they don't let him. And it's the best. And I love him. I love it. It's He does
0: it at the very end of the book have that part where he's going, I guess I'll go back and work on the farm It'll be a nice life, a simple life, to work with my hands, to be in the sun, I'll be reborn. And then the woman comes up to him and is like, would you like to watch a friggin' movie? And he's like, I guess I'm still a spy. (laughs) I guess I'm not
1: allowed to go fucking home for ten minutes. Poor guy.
0: Joe Saunders, you are a established, seasoned satellite guy in Alaska. This guy named Dunlow is assigned to your post, uh, and it's just a rancid attitude. This guy has gone through some, some shit, and whatever happened to him made him deeply religious. He's always trying to talk you into, you know, don't have impure thoughts, God punishes such things. And to get him off your case, you either read or pretend to read while at work. You bring to work a copy of Mission Impossible by Peter Barsicchini. Knowing what you know, do you think that this version of yourself would have a good time with that book?
2: Uh, I think so. I think I would get a little bit of a, um perspective onto what my new co-worker's interior life is like and how he won't let himself talk to women that he thinks are <laughs> too pretty. <laughs> um, And I think this would be just a nice little... I thought this was... I would be curious what it would be like to read this book if you had not seen the movie because I thought it was a pretty effective little like kind of airport thriller, like spy thriller, like just as itself. It reads super fast. What was it? Like 217 pages, flies by. Um, I really enjoyed it and I thought it was fun. And I, and I agree that like the action parts are kind of the weakest parts, I thought, like the 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 sneaking, the actual sneaking into the CIA and then the last the, the train stuff at the end. I thought it was kind of like the slowest parts, where I was like, "Okay, okay, let's get back to everyone like talking." Um, but otherwise, a pretty uh, effective little spy story book, I thought, and by the creator of High School Musical. Who would have thought? <laughs> the guy does spectacle. He does spectacle.
1: <laughs> he knows the power of a strong emotion.
2: I admi- Yeah, I just uh, imagined uh, Zach Efron as uh, Ethan Hunt the whole time. <laughs> Wouldn't be
0: bad. Let's get him into he movies, could, he, he a,
1: honestly. He could
2: be a Renner-esque. He
0: could be the, the sort of new hunt type of character. We're ready for, oh. the, for the Efron, you know, turn to uh, a, a new kind of populism. Where instead of being the pretty mm. boy, he's the, the rugged spy or whatever. I'm ready for that.
2: <laughs> I was really upset about oh, Aldrich Ames. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's 2023 and I'm still talking about Aldrich Ames. Hannah Blackman, uh take the baton for me here.
1: Yeah, you got it. Matt Fisher, you yes. are that guy who works for Max, <laughs> who mostly just hangs around <laughs> and sometimes does her computer stuff. You have a lot of free time while she's jet-setting doing arms deals. And during that time, you're just asked to hold down the fort, basically. During that free time, you're going to pick up and read Mission Impossible by the creator of High School Musical. Is that going to be a fun way to fill your day, given how exciting your life can sometimes be?
3: Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, not only do would I see my own adventures reflected in it, but, you know, uh, a competent take on the computer technology of the time, you know, sort of uh, speaks to my interests. Um, and, uh, yeah, I would really like it. Also, you know, easy, easy to take from place to place. They're very good at clearing out of apartments. Easy book to throw in your back pocket when you have to X- ex- Exfil. And yeah, I really like it.
4: Mm -hmm.
1: Andrew Overby, you are a train conductor on the train that goes from London to Paris Mm -hmm. through the channel. Mm. Uh, Most of the time it's pretty boring, but one time a helicopter flies in after you and it's super scary and then it explodes and a guy like splats onto the front of your train. Mm -hmm. Surely did Right why did this happen what what could have possibly brought what combination of events landed which passenger can i Makes no sense to you it's so confusing (laughs) and a guy shows up he's an american he's very stern and he's like if you want to know what happened here is a book to explain it to you ask me no further questions goodbye and the book is mission impossible a novel by peter varsicini is that going to answer all your questions? Is that going to be a satisfying read?
0: Yeah, I, I like the book a lot. Um, In general, my tastes skew towards novelizations being f- more flowery than this, deviating from movies more than this one does. Sometimes authors aren't allowed to do it or they just decide not to do it. That's not their style. For what this is, a novelization that hugs very tightly to the structure of the film. I think it has great character beats and provides uh, bits of context for what it is to be recruited by the IMF, how you get it disavowed, what the machinations of that bureaucracy are like. So, yeah, uh, strong recommend on this one, for sure. Matt Fisher, what do you do, where do you do it, and why?
3: Uh, I make comedy in Brooklyn. Uh, You can look me up on all the finer social medias, and uh, and, yeah. Yeah incredible
0: thank you so much for coming on
3: oh thanks so much for having me it's been it's been a blast and an honor to be here for a tom cruise movie which i know um is uh near and dear to the institutional heart of the show and i'm
0: sure you'll you'll be (laughs) back for many sneak movies to come joe saunders same question what do you do where do you do it and why
2: why do i do it um uh my name is uh i'm a comedy writer who lives in los angeles uh i'm on twitter at uh, at Saunders Joe and uh, I run on a TV show called Solar Opposites which has a new season coming out uh, in mid-August we have a new lead actor on the show <laughs> for people that you know are worried about that who's very funny and if you enjoy the show check that out please
0: now, now this is this new lead actor this is a, a different person with the same name or this is the guest
2: the guest this is the guest um, this is yes, Dan Stevens, Dan the Dan Stevens, Cousin Matthew from Downton Abbey, the Beast on the live action Beauty of the Beast. Um, he's just doing his British, he's doing his British accented voice. It's hilarious. Yeah,
0: I, I saw um, the, the promo for the new season and it, it, I just, I'm so used to him faking American. I was like, you know, is this the same guy? He has such a gorgeous voice
2: yes it's very uh he was very funny they did a bunch of auditions i mean aud- they did a bunch of auditions to replace uh old what's his name Boop. and um they uh he was just had a hilarious audition and he's uh really funny and it's very funny that like uh the, that there's like this now this hot handsome guy in the show <laughs> I think he came in to record and like they I saw a photo of him recording and like he has like cool like blonde like swept back hair and like all these tattoos and he's like talking about like being an alien with stuff getting stuck in his butt. Mm -hmm.
0: Incredible. Just a (laughs) just an incredible recast. Joe, thank you so much for coming on.
2: Oh yes, and thank you for so much for having me on. This is a blast. To our listeners, please do
0: Rate our podcast, review it, subscribe to it. Check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash authorized pod. And as usual, I'm going to close out the episode by reading a passage from a classic piece of literature. Please do tweet at authorized pod if you think that you recognize what this is from. Hey, Ethan, what's with the turnover with our boss at the IMF? It was Henry Zerny, but then it was Anthony Hopkins, but then it was Lawrence Fishburne, but then it was God fuck. Jeremy Renner, but then it was Alec Baldwin, but then it was Angela Bassett. who did I miss? Uh,
1: uh
3: from Almost. Oh, famous.
0: oh, it's Michael Clayton. It's uh it's uh <laughs> fuck, what's his name?
1: Oh yeah Tom Wilkinson? Uh, Tom Wilkinson gets oh, shot totally in the head in Ghost
0: Protocol. Anyway, yeah, Ethan, why is that defense. happening? It's like the friggin' defense against the dark arts over here. Oh. Well, it's funny that you ask. That position is a bit of a a Game of Thrones. Good night. <laughs> So, in the spirit of all of this, you know, double naming, double speak going on in Mission Impossible, we have Job, we have Max, I want to ask the three of you, whose code name is this? <laughs> <laughs> and so what you'll do is you'll buzz in with your first name, be that Hannah, Matt, or Joe, and let me know the real name... That goes with this code name. So, oh, man. up first on screen already, what was the real name of McLovin from Superbad?
2: <laughs> wow! Wow! Wow!
0: Does yeah. anyone
1: know that? <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's in the movie, but then when he goes switches over to Superbad, or not Superbad, to McLovin, they just never say it again. All right, it- the answer is, of course.
2: Fogel. Fogel. Mm. Yes, Fogel. It feels like a little familiar, Yes, right? I think the cops, I think like the, somebody calls him Fogel. I feel like the cops call him Fogel maybe or I don't know. Well, I think that was the hardest one. Hopefully,
0: we'll start having fun soon. <laughs> Up next, whose code name is this? Rolo Tomasi. Oh. These are hard. Thank you. <laughs>
1: And this picture is not giving us a clue, right?
0: No, these are Rolo's The Candy.
1: Right. Okay.
3: Matt. Matt. Matt Fisher. Rolo Tomasi, the man who gets away with it, turns out to be uh, Captain Dudley Smith. Dudley Smith of some rank in the LAPD.
0: Fantastic! You are correct. This is uh, from L.A. Confidential. Just oh. Google that, Matt.
3: No, I would never. <laughs> You're I just would, looking I over would, the I side. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, Rollo Tomasi is a much discussed character in L.A. Confidential. He's like a theoretical dude, uh, and then we find out who the bad guy is because he references the theoretical dude as if he's real, which we know he isn't. Mm. Up next, whose code name is this? Art Vandalay. Oh. Matt. Matt Fisher.
3: George Costanza of Science. This Seinfeld. is, of course,
0: <laughs> a commonly used nom de plume of George Costanza. His, his go-to in, I'm going to say, I don't know, 10 different episodes. He's the architect, but he's also many other things. <laughs> Art Vandalay. I like
2: how you showed us a, a photo of a, a van. <laughs> for, for that.
1: I... This that is van the, is being delayed on the road.
0: <laughs> this is the PowerPoint logic. I go. I don't want to give the answer away, so I guess it's all just phonetic. I guess. <laughs> Up next, whose code name is this? Citizen Four.
2: Oh, this is um. The slide might be a clue. Oh, I know Joe. I'm, I'm chiming in. Joe, yes. I think this is Edward Snowden. This is, of course, we're looking at a, a very snowy
0: street here. And this is, of course, Edward Snowden's codename before he met for the interviews in which he did all the whistleblowing. And then it was subsequently the name of the documentary in which he was interviewed. Up next, <laughs> whose codename is this? Lyman Zurga.
3: Oh, l- I just need the, the character's l- name. I have the movie. The line said again and again <laughs> is,
0: my name is Lyman Zurga." rehearsed over and over again in this
3: film. I can't believe I'm blanking on his name.
0: Matt, if you can identify the character in a recognizable way, descriptively, I'll give you the point.
3: Uh, it is a character from Ocean's Eleven played by... Now I'm blanking on his name too. Jeez. Um, <laughs> um, All right, you obviously have this, this picture is this in Matt your head. D- Matt Damon's character?
2: In,
0: it is not Matt Damon's character.
3: No, it's um the, the he worked with Mel Brooks. Uh, what's his? Um, oh, Carl Reiner. Carl Reiner's name. Um, All
0: right, let's give one point to each of them. This is of oh,
1: course.
2: No, I was just I was just assisting. <laughs>
1: No point, well, to unfortunately, point to both. You this got is right, it. right as point givers. Wow. So, congratulations. Mm.
2: This is of course Carl
0: Reiner playing Saul Bloom, Saul Bloom in Ocean's 11, uh, in which he pretends to be Lyman Zurga, a very wealthy man trying to get his wares into the vault at the Bellagio. And speaking of Saul, we all know about the alias Saul Goodman. What was his name before and what alias did he adopt afterwards? Oh, man. We don't have any good heads in the crowd today, I guess. I'm not a good head. You know I've never watched this show. (laughs) Oh, sure, but I can't tailor them all to you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, this one's a dud. His name, of course, (laughs) Jimmy, and eventually, when on the run, Gene... Takovic. Up next, in... The film Donnie Brasco, the main character, goes undercover in the mob under what name? I don't
2: know. I
4: don't
2: know. I would think Donnie Brasco was the name he went undercover as. But... Of course, he went undercover as Donnie Brasco. Hey! <laughs> hey!
0: <laughs> and for a bonus point, does anyone know the nickname that Al Pacino's character had in the mob? Hmm? Hmm. All right. It was Lefty. Mm, lefty.
1: <laughs> Not great.
0: Up next, what is this a code name for? C Tech Astronomy.
3: Yes, indeed. That's Matt. C-Tech. Matt rings in. Oh. Matt Fisher. C Tech Astronomy is an anagram of too many secrets, uh, and which is a. Um, a secret code breaking device. In the movie <laughs> sneakers.
0: He's very close yes. to running down the entire plot of the movie <laughs> sneakers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh I uh I, I considered going with Mark Bishop, but I thought sure. C Tech Astronomy. A little harder <laughs> to wrap your head around. Up next, whose code name is this? Joey Gorp eighty <laughs> five. Oh my gosh. Hmm. What if I were to tell you that it's a real person? All right, sometimes the games work and sometimes they're duds. JoeyGorp85, of course, the Twitter handle that John Krasinski used to defend himself when fans were being critical. And because uh you know i don't want to get sued or anything allegedly that happened (laughs) maybe it was someone else but it really seemed like him oh i don't even know this story but this is the rest of my day is looking into this (laughs) yes definitely check out joey gorp 85 in krasinski's defense the tweet that made him create this account allegedly is vicious someone tweeted (laughs) at him something like if I ever saw John Krasinski and his ugly ass children in the street, <laughs> I'd punch them. Oh, my God. And then he logs on That's with this lot. account made 15 minutes prior where he's like, John Krasinski is military trained and could beat you up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Our final question. Hard to believe it's over. We're having so much fun. The alias Jason Bourne. What is his oh name? My
1: oh, my God. my God.
3: Wow. Wow.
1: (laughs) I truly just thought his name was Jason Bourne. just like name. I think it's
2: that. I think this is another Donnie Brasco. Okay, let's
0: say that's right. And I have to hit escape instead of clicking or else it'll reveal the answer. No, it's of course, David Webb. (laughs) Oh. Mm. He doesn't know his own name, you know, so he he thinks (laughs) he's Jason Bourne for three Mm. movies. Great. Mm. Wow. Me too.
3: That's what I thought too. <laughs> you
1: yeah, <he> got me,
0: <laughs> Hannah. Did anyone get a single point in that game?
1: Oh yeah, Matt got four. Joe got three. I got a solid zero. So yeah, points Incredible. were had. Wow. You couldn't it's, toss it... one Philip Duchette in there for me. I was. There were a number that I
0: thought were going to be way too goddamn easy, and now I'm <laughs> like, should have used them all. Should have mm. used every <laughs> single one. Mm-hmm.